Let's start this thing off by sort of giving you a soft introduction. You're a theoretical physicist. Yeah. Um, been doing this your whole life. Yes. You uh, were contacted by the CIA in the 70s, is that right? To work on some stuff with consciousness and... And flying saucers. And, and flying saucers in the 70s. Yeah. And actually, even a little bit before that, but that's yeah, a complex story. Right, right. And then... Um, your early childhood, can you explain what was going on in your early childhood when you got that phone call that one night from who, who yeah, called Yeah, well, you? I should go back before that. Okay. Uh, because um, when, uh, when I was about seven or eight, I guess, my parents in Brooklyn got divorced, and I went to live with my maternal grandparents in the Bronx. And my grandfather was working for the U.S. Army. And um, uh, he was uh, li- li- just a, like a, a chauffeur. He would drive uh, uh, out of the garment district, the quartermaster corps, uh, and he would drive these officers around, whatever they were doing, you know, acquisition of uh, material, uniforms in, in the garment district. So I would uh, go down there a lot. And um, uh, the, it was an interesting situation. In fact, I spent a lot of time there. And I, they gave me free reign of the place as a kid, you know, the eight, ten-year-old kid. I, you know, run around. They had all these great laboratories, and they had cold weather lab and a hot weather lab, and this and you know and stuff. And I was like play there. And then I, um, uh, I sometimes would would drive around with my grandfather driving the car, sitting in the back of this army vehicle with these army officers, like talking. And I was a bright kid, you know. They were like encouraging me to, you know. Uh, I had been reading all the science fiction pulp magazines coming out, Twenty Five Cents, Astounding, Amazing Stories, and I knew about time travel and you know, rockets to the moon. I wanted to be a, a rocket engineer and build the rockets, and I was being encouraged by all that to do that. Uh, and they also, I remember the the subject of flying saucers came up. So this is like. Um, Maybe just a couple of years, three, four, at most five years uh, uh, after Roswell. You know, actually less than that, three, four years after Roswell. And then um, uh, much later, I guess in the 90s, when the book by Colonel Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell, came out, I opened the book and I look at the photograph and I said, you know, like I recognize this I can't be a hundred percent sure because yeah, I could be like manufacturing a memory. You, you can't tell. You know, this this something happened over seventy years ago, right? Right. Uh, seventy three, seventy four years ago, and uh, but I think it was Corso was the main guy I, who used to talk to me. Corso was Philip Philip Corso, the guy who wrote. You know who he is? Do you he, know who he, he wrote the day after Waswell, right? Yeah, but do you know what it's about? Do you know the story? I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, Corso uh, is the guy who uh, claims that he uh, was at Roswell um, and that he witnessed the uh, aliens, you know, dead aliens, and that he saw the saucer and uh, and that he had them shipped to... uh, to write Patterson, I guess it was, mm-hmm. uh, back then. And then uh, he also claims that um, later on, he claims that this, I forget this general he worked for, um, uh, he was in charge of the uh, foreign material. He was in charge of all the retrieved material, crash material from from Roswell. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, there's, um, I, I can tell you a lot more. Uh, yeah, maybe later we get into it because otherwise it'll be too disjoint if I just jump ahead to like, there's more stuff I know about the Roswell material. I know a lot of stuff about that. Um, okay, so there we are. I'm like, uh, you know, a few years after Roswell happens, I'm with these guy. I'm with the military officer, I think, or was somebody like him, or somebody worked with him because they were talking about flying saucers. I was being talked to, you know, flying saucers. Uh, and then, okay, so then I moved back with my mother when I'm about 13 in Brooklyn, and that's when the phone call happened. The, the, uh, I'm alone. Uh, and my mother's somewhere out. It's a summer night, a nice warm summer night, probably August. And uh, the phone rings. And I pick up the phone and I hear, uh, you know, first, you know, I could hardly hear just like, um, like, you know, like coordinates, you know, like numbers, like seven, six, uh, yeah, but in a strange voice, but very low. And then and I'm trying to listen. I don't quite, you know, can't get it. And then the volume increases. Volume increases, and I hear also clunking like switching circuits. Oh, I also had a, I was reading a book at the time on the early computers, mechanical relay computers called switching circuits, Bell Laboratories. Mm. So I'm I'm hearing like the clunking. So it's like it's like a computer. Okay, what I thought, you know, what people thought of computers. Well, 1953, hardly anybody even knew what a computer was, but I did, you know. Uh, and so uh, and then gets louder, and then Stephen Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> you know Stephen Hawking? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, wasn't, you know what he sounded like because he couldn't talk? The mm -hmm. metallic voice. It's the, it's the Stephen Hawking voice in 1953. Okay, I'm hearing this voice, and it says and identifies itself as a computer on board a flying saucer from the future. Hmm. Back from the future. Okay. Verbatim. <laughs> Well, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but then, yeah, I mean, not yeah, I'm paraphrasing. I, you know, this it said long, it was on a flying saucer, though. Yeah, it was says. Well, I think it may. I think it said it was on board a spacecraft from the future. Okay, it may have said flying, but you know, I was into flying saucers already by then. So it was mm -hmm. you know, space mm -hmm. from the. It's a time machine, time travel. Right away, I'm told it's time travel. And they said they've that uh, they are contacting uh, several hundred. I think they said even four hundred. I think I heard the four hundred young receptive minds that they want to teach their technology to. Bear in mind what's happening now, you know, with the congressional all this stuff, right? Mm. They want to teach their technology. And at first I thought, you know, because I was a pretty streetwise kid, and uh, I thought it was, you know, it's a joke. I thought it was a joke. Because I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not out of touch with reality. I mean, I, I just, How old are you? I was 13, 1953, 13 years old. And I'm trying to think, who's, okay, go, okay, I got the joke, you know, who's doing this? And then I, suddenly it occurs to me, none of my friends of my age group were as smart as me in terms of science. You know, they weren't into all this stuff. They were like normal kids. I was an abnormal kid. <laughs> I was a nerd. But these kids, yeah, they're just all American, you know, back, you know. Uh, and uh, so it couldn't have been a kid. And also... They, none of them had access to the kind of technology that can make a cold metallic voice, right? And I think it's got to be an adult. You know, this is like going through my mind, you know. And, uh, and then, so, so that could be dangerous. You know, that was, you know, knew that there may be weirdos around. And uh, 
But then it said, so yeah, let it continue. And it said I had to now tell them out of my own free will if I wanted to participate in this project. <laughs> and then, you know, did you ever see this thing with, you know, like you have the little devil on one shoulder and the angel mm. on the other shoulder and say, do it, do it, don't do it, don't do it. You know, like, uh, and, I'm thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, no. I think, you know, internal dialogue, no. But then I feel like an electric shock go from the base of my spine to the back of my head here. You're like, it's a, you know, like an electrical feeling. And I hear myself saying, yes. All right, this is interesting. And, th and then they say, um, oh, and they also said that I begin, uh, they said, good. And now they said, I will begin to meet the others in 20 years. So it's got to be time travel. They're telling me what's going to happen 20 years in the future, 73, all right? So, and then they said, then the voice says, go out on your fire escape and we're going to send a ship to pick you up in 10 minutes. All right? So at this point, so I hang up the phone. At this point, I'm scared and I'm you know, excited, right? The kid, you know. Yeah. And um, so I run down into the street. It's a hot summer night. This is New York. This is uh, Flatbush. This is, um, it's an Irish, German, uh, Italian, Catholic neighborhood. You know, big church, the Irish bar. The Italian baker, uh, the uh, German bakery, where I get these Charlotte Russes and everything, and it's you know, brownstone, and it's it's it, everybody's out. Yeah, you know, it's a warm, beautiful night. Everybody's out on the street. The mothers with their kids and the uh, strollers. It's a it's a whole scene out of like a Broadway musical, right? <laughs> and uh, I had a gang. Yeah, I was like my gang. I was, I'm looking. So I find I run. I I find Neil and Norman Legata. Okay, uh, Neil is. Is is my age, you know, thirteen, and he's a strapping, he's a strapping Italian kid, you know. I mean, you know, he's a like, you know, he's a strong kid, mm -hmm. and his little uh, brother uh, uh, Neil Norman. I'm sorry, Norman is his brother, who's like ten years old. The two of them, so they're part of my. And then I run into my Winky, Winky, who is a tough Irish kid. <laughs> And our mothers, yeah, was like, well, we grew up together, and the mothers, all the mothers knew each other. Uh, and Winky, he's like, a, he's like a price. He's a really tough Irish kid. Like he'd say, yeah, punch me in the stomach. You know, he had the abs. You know, punch me. You know, and uh, and uh, he, he, when I went to Cornell at uh, age sixteen, he joined the Marines. Okay, he was in the Marines. He was in Vietnam again. Well, no, like this is before Vietnam. No, Korea. Wait a second. No, this is before Vietnam. This is uh, 56, yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, this is uh, right after Korea. So, and he, uh, then when he got out of the Marines, his real name is Al Bro, and he became a very well-known uh, New York City NYPD homicide detective. Okay. I, I don't know if he's still alive. I mean, all right. So, these are my, so we all... Said the flying sauce is coming to get me, coming to pick me up, and you know. So the four of us kids, we go up to my place within the ten minute period, and that's it. Nothing ever happened. Nobody showed up. No, they didn't show up, as far as I know. <laughs> All right. So, so did you think about that after? Did you think like really, yeah, maybe bit, was I being really. pranked? And I forgot. Yeah, you know, basically forgot about it. Right. Forgot about it. And um, then, so then, what happens? Uh, but then, remember, I was with this, all this army stuff happening before I got back to Brooklyn, right? 
So then I'm 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 going to high school, and I get involved with this kid Johnny Glogauer, who's a year younger than me. And he's a quiz kid. At that time, they had a radio show, The Quiz Kids. And he also was um, went to Juilliard. Do you know anything about Juilliard School of Music? Is for very talented kids in music in Manhattan. So he was a student at violin at Juilliard. He was a quiz kid on the radio. You know, he's kind of famous. And he was also reading Sinjin Shield Tensor Calculus. He's 11 years old, 12 years old, which is, you know, the mathematics of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Mm. Okay. And and he, in fact, they took him, uh, the Quiz Kids show, there's a whole big thing in the newspapers, that they take this boy genius like a Mozart of, you know, uh, it was a Juilliard. He was, a, he was famous. He was a celebrity, basically. And they took him to meet Albert Einstein. You know, this is 1953. Einstein died like two years in 55. And so I'm the only kid that Johnny can talk to. You know, he's, you know. And um, and so during our middle school, basically I spent a lot of time, me and Johnny, you know, hanging out, talking science, all that stuff. He would be sort of teaching me tensor calculus kind of, right? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and then there's this other kid whose name I forget, whose father was the physics professor at Brooklyn College, which is right next door. Right, that's my neighborhood. We're very close to Brooklyn College and Midwood High School, where Woody Allen went. And so we would also spend. Uh, by this time, I was already in high school, like a freshman. Uh, uh, my, well, I skipped a, a year. I guess I was a sophomore. You know, they skipped us through. Uh, and uh, so we would also be hanging out. Johnny Glogawa, this other kid, I wish I could remember his name, but his father was a professor, was the professor of physics at Brooklyn College. So we'd hang out in the, in the physics laboratory at Brooklyn College, uh, you know, playing around, doing whatever we were doing. And then um, and then, then there's this other crazy kid named Robert Bashlow. Robert Bashlow was about my age, Russian, you know, Russian Jewish. You know, that man, and he was also at Juilliard piano. Mm. And he uh, he also was uh, making thousands of dollars at the age of 13 in the coin market in New York, Manhattan, selling rare coins. He, was, you know, he always had money. You know, he was, so we had whatever money we want. You want this ice cream? You want that one? You know. <laughs> and he yeah, he could play anything. He he would we would hang out in his parents in his basement. They had a Steinway piano. He'd be playing Mozart, Scarlatti, Bach, you know, flawlessly. Yeah, you know, like a concert pianist. Wow. Okay. So one day he says, uh, "Hey, listen, I'm like, you got to meet this guy." So uh, Johnny Glogauer, me, and uh, Robert Bashel takes us up to uh, Germantown, 86th Street in Lexington area. Germantown is, you know, this beautiful apartment house, and we meet this guy who's about 30 years old named Walter Breen. Okay, Walter Breen, young guy, and Walter Breen. So we start hanging out a lot, going up, you know, weekends. Walter Breen. Now, it turns out Walter Breen, now this is interesting. Walter Breen is running a program for gifted children run out of Columbia University by Professor William Sheldon. Just, okay, gifted, studying, you know, so he's gathered there. So Breen's apartment, it's a beautiful apartment. Actually, it was a mess because they didn't clean. But, uh, you know, he had sculptures and books. It was, you know, he was a real intellectual place. And people would come from Ayn Rand, from uh, all kinds of people would show up there. It was kind of like an enriched atmosphere. And they would talk. It was like a salon. Mm. And, uh, and we, you know, we were part of that scene. 
And then, um, but at times these guys in black suits, like the men in black, would come up from Albuquerque, from New Mexico. And, um, and they would lecture us. This was the you know, McCarthy era. This is the, the Eisenhower's president. And they would lecture us on you know, the Russian threat, the Soviet threat, communism, and how uh, it's important we learn physics. And they were talking about flying saucers. We want you to figure it out, okay? And then also they would test us for psychic powers. They would do like run, you know, like the different tests to see if we could move move objects with our minds. So right out of X Men, right out of X Men. And Walter Walter didn't do too much, of that, but yeah, you know, he was like Walter was like our was like the scoutmaster, okay? For these, and um, and then so so this was going on. My whole high school. Also, I was in the Civil Air Patrol. You know, Air Force cadet, sort of, you know, flying airplanes, Griffiths mm-hmm. Air Force Base, Civil Air Patrol for kids. And um, and then, uh, so when it came time to, to go to college, uh, Walter, they wanted me to go to the University of Chicago. They had some connections there. They had this 100-book program. Who wanted you to go there? Uh, well, the Breen, the, you know, the, the people from Columbia, you know, from this this. You know, this school, this X Men kind of thing, where they were. Did they have a name for that program? Well, no. Uh, there's a, there's a, okay. There's a guy you may want to talk to him. There's a guy named Bruce Vogel. He's a little bit younger than me. He was part of that program. I later, I think, you know, after I had already left it, he was part of it. But he's the literary. He has all of the Walter Breen manuscripts, so he knows a lot about it. And if you wanted to actually do some investigation, it's probably oh. worth. Talk, I'll give you his phone number. You can call him. Uh, and so, um, and then, sorry, to, uh, yeah. just going back to yeah. when you were hanging out with Walter and those guys, those quote unquote men in black were showing up. Yeah. What, when you talked to those guys who showed up from Albuquerque, did yeah. you ask them who they were, where they were from? Remember, we were kids. We don't, you know, we're, we're just, we're innocent kids. We don't know what the, well, no, they, I think. They just they, told you that? They said. No, no. Well, you could see they were like official, like FBI guys. So, yeah. I mean, they were, in, you know, they, they were both. You know, the, you know the way the FBI dresses; they were dressed like that. Okay. And I remember we walk around, we go out to eat with them, and they. I remember one guy. You know, Walter is with some other kids in the front, and I'm just talking to this one guy, and he's talking to me about patriotism and you know defending the country and all this kind of you know kind of pep talk, mm-hmm. uh, anti-communist kind of pep talk. Right. And uh, and I did remember well one time they're saying yeah <laughs> they're saying. Uh, they're saying, uh, like a critique, they're saying, I heard one of the guys say, hey, Walter, why can't you get these kids into more into the the arts? Because there was stuff about sculptures and music, and some of them were. Mm-hmm. And Walter was saying, well, no, they only want to do science, math. Okay, so there was, uh, there was oh, uh, Alan Greenspan was part of the group. Not, not my group, he's in an earlier version. Alan Greenspan became head of the Federal Reserve. Okay? Wow. <clears throat> other guys Robert Solomon a lot of a lot of people they were like tr- obviously creating cadres like for the ruling class you know for the intelligence community to sort of like take over as part of the you know this is some kind of project and uh, 
I think I think they were from Sandia, but I don't know if it was called Sandia, which is the nuclear weapons lab, okay? You know, from the Manhattan Project, okay? Uh, I don't know if, if at that early, if it was actually called Sandia, but whatever was left from the Manhattan Project, that's what they were, these guys, ah, I think, were connected with. Okay. Got it. All right. And, uh, okay, so it comes time for me to go to college. I'm 16, almost 17, you know, my senior year at Midwood. And uh, this, they wanted me to go to Chicago because they had some program at Chicago. But I also applied. My mother didn't want me to go that far. I also applied to uh, MIT and Cornell. And I got into all three. But my mother said, go to, well, my, you know, Cornell is closer to New York, 240 miles. And also there was a, a beautiful girl, Naily Gottlieb, who was going to Cornell, you know, high school kid, and who said, oh, Jack, why don't you come to Cornell? I was kind of in love with, you know, smitten with her. She was quite lovely. And so I decided to go to Cornell. And um, they they were kind of unhappy. Walter's group they 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 were really disappointed. They didn't go to Chicago, so they had some reason they wanted me to go to Chicago. I don't know. I'll never know what it is. Well, Bruce Vogel may know what what it was. So in any case, so uh, time for me to go to Cornell. Oh yes, and, and Walter said he had written a ten-page analysis of me, you know, for my colleges, you know, college entrance. They they arranged for me to go to these schools. Okay. And I did say, he did say, you know, uh, in the 10-page thing, I did say, well, you know, you're young and you're emotionally immature, but you could be another Isaac Newton creating a, an entire new physics. That's what I was told, okay? I'd like to actually see that report. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in fact, this guy, Bruce Vogel, is looking, trying to see if if, Walt, if there's anything in Walter's writings where he talks about that period, you know, because he, right. And so, okay, but there's another strange thing about this guy, Walter Breen. He was in the Army Air Force in New Mexico in 1947, around Roswell. Right. Okay. And in 1947, he was in a, he was in a plane crash. Now, he, I'm not, did, you know, was it a plane crash because of the flying because of the flying saucer? Mm. He never said that. He never said that. Okay. But he was in a plane crash and he was hurt and he was in the army hospital for many months, almost a year maybe. Wow. Okay. But he said as a result after the plane crash, he suddenly got he got like he got superpower, intellect. Seems to be connected with the crash, it would, which suggests that it was connected with the flying saucer incident, right? And he said that, and in fact, you could talk to Bruce Vogel, knows a lot more about this. And he said he, uh, and then he was able, and I guess in, they had a, a correspondence course for if you're in the military. He, was, he did four years of college undergraduate work from Johns Hopkins University in one year and got a bachelor's degree at the end of one year for four years of work because he could do, you know, his IQ was like unmeasurable. Wow. Okay. Okay. And apparently all the kids that they selected, you know, had to be, you know, <laughs> a certain level. Okay. So uh, there's a, you know, there's a flying source of connection right then and there with this guy who sends me, okay. All right. So I go to Cornell and my professors are the guys who built the atomic bomb. If you go... To see the film Oppenheimer, these are up. This is Hans Bethe, mm -hmm. Philip Morrison, Kenneth Grayson, 
you know, all these, a lot of these guys are in the movie, I'm told. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm going to see it in London uh, in about a month when I go back to London. And um, and there we are. So there, I'm with the guy, the guys who built the bomb. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative containing four adaptogenic mushrooms. With only a fraction of the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the jitters or the crash of coffee. And each ingredient was added for a purpose. Cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and hot chocolate-like flavor. Lion's mane to support focus. Cordyceps to help support physical performance, and both chaga and reishi to support your immune system. What I really love about Mudwater is that it tastes great, and they took their time to find all the perfect ingredients to develop a product that helps you feel better every single day. Mudwater donates monthly to psychedelic research and treatments as they believe the country is in a mental health epidemic and sees psychedelics as useful tools for individuals with depression, PTSD, anxiety, and other mental health experiences. So get 15% off and a free frother by using my link below, mudwater.com forward slash Danny, and use the code Danny at checkout to get 15% off. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com forward slash Danny, and use the promo code Danny at checkout to get 15% off. It's linked below. Now back to the show. I was also a singer. I was involved in, you know, I had a musical side to me too. Uh-huh. And at uh, in high school, I was in the All City Chorus. Like, for example, we would sing at Madison Square Garden with Arturo Toscanini conducting, mm. you know, a thousand kids from all the high schools, you know. And uh, uh, and then, um, so when I got to Cornell, I um, got into, like, not my freshman year, my sophomore year, I got involved with the Cornell Gilbert and Sullivan Society, Savoyard, Savoyard Society. And I had a voice teacher uh, from England Keith Faulkner, uh, and so I remember he used to. Uh, I would go, you know, to his studio and uh, maybe give me voice lessons and stuff like that. So one day I'm there, and there's this uh, libretto on his the piano there, and his close friend was Benjamin Britten, a famous English composer. And Benjamin Britten is like 1957 or so, maybe 58, I guess 57, around there, and. Um, and Benjamin Britten had just written this children's opera, Noah's Flutter, about Noah's flood, you know. And so I was in the, uh, uh, Keith produced it. I was, I was in the American premiere of the Noah's Flutter opera. I was Ham, you know, as a kid, mm-hmm. Ham, the son of Noah. You know, it was, a, it was the American premiere of this, of this opera right. by Benjamin Britten. But what's also inter- interesting about this is that years later, Okay, when Keith, when Faulkner left Cornell, he went back to England. He was uh, head, made head of the Her Majesty's Royal College of Music in London. Okay, but I only found out fairly recently, last few years. I checked on Wikipedia. Faulkner, yeah, he died. Turns out, during World War II, he was the first uh, Royal Navy pilot combat pilot off the carriers and he was an ace he shot down a lot of you know in the battle of britain he was like shot down a lot of you know uh messerschmitts you know so he was a he was a hero <laughs> what's wow. a hero okay so all these guys now now it turns out now all right so let me jump why am i talking about this there's a movie called the good shepherd yeah you told me about this yeah, last heard, night okay all right so the movie and i told so but for the audience the point is that um okay back then especially Rhodes Scholars, very tight connection 
between the British intelligence establishment and the American intelligence establishment and the Ivy League schools. The Ivy League schools, white privilege, very elite. They're like when I got to Cornell, we were met by a fresh camp that night by Governor Averill Harriman, who was the governor of New York, who had been I th- uh, the ambassador to the Soviet Union. And we were given a pep talk how we're the future leaders of the country, uh, freedom, responsibility, all this kind of stuff, okay? The, uh, the <clears throat> central, okay, the, the origin of Central Intelligence Agency, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, in the film, The Good Shepherd, uh, which is about James Jesus Angleton, right, whose grandson is a friend of mine who I work with, James Angleton III, all right, who's in Florida, you know, in your place, okay? So, in any case, in the movie, which has Matt Damon, and I think De Niro's in it. De Niro plays some spook, the CIA spook, okay? And um, and the opening scene of this movie is at Yale. It's a Gilbert and Sullivan production at Yale. Remember, I was the lead tenor of the Cornell Gilbert and Sullivan Society, which is directed from England, from the Doily Cart, from English. It has English, and the Doily Cart, those people are connected with the British intelligence establishment. well known, if you go look at all this stuff. In fact, the Central Intelligence Agency was, was created by MI6, by the British intelligence, this whole history of that, you know, back before, you know, at the beginning of World War II. Right. The Americans are very naive. Americans didn't have much of an intelligence. So the CIA... Yeah, the OSS, right? Yeah, the OSS. Yeah, yeah this whole, I could go into the history of the OSS. Uh, oh, and I should also mention, yeah, now that I'm mentioning, the project at Columbia University was financed by a guy who was connected with the OSS, Eugene McDermott. Hmm. Eugene McDermott, who's like these Van you know, he was, in fact, one of the founders of Texas Instruments, was a close friend of William Sheldon, was funding all this stuff to create, you know, the genius kids for the military industrial complex, you know, all right? Wow. All right, okay, so it's all, it's all very tightly connected. So in any case, in the opening of the, mo- of the movie, The Good Shepherd, uh, Matt Damon is dressed in, uh, he's playing Buttercup, you know, female, because it was all male, right? Like the Elizabethan theaters, you know, the men played the women. And they still do that Bohemian Grove, by the way. And um, They do? Yeah. And, uh, well, because the men are not, you know, it's a men's only club. They allow women, you know, special occasions, but they put on shows and, you know. Yeah. But the same, yeah, this was, you know, this is a, this, Skull and Bones, the same, Skull, Skull, yeah. It's, okay. same, it's a secret society, it's that whole thing. <laughs> right, right. All right. And the Illuminati, the whole thing. All right. Um, and, um, and so uh, in the movie, after Matt Damon is backstage, you know, uh, one, of his, one of his English professors, like Keith Faulkner was with me, and basically recruits him into the, into the clandestine services. Mm-hmm. So this is how, and this is their setting up. The Brits are actually setting up what, what the, well, the OSS, and the war starts later, the OSS. And there's a whole story about that, but it's too, you know, tangential. Um, so the Brits are setting up the OSS uh, with uh, Wild Bill Donovan. There's a whole story I know about that. And, um, and eventually becomes the CIA. And uh, uh, Angleton, you know, is one of the early guys. He was in the OSS and creating uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. James Jesus Angleton. James Jesus Angleton, yeah. Whose grandson, mm-hmm. you know, I... I know. 
So when you were at Cornell, you were working with the guys who were a Hans, part of the Manhattan Project. Hans Bethe, Phil Morrison, Kenneth Grison, and what was Robert your- Wilson? You know, and oh yes, and and the important thing there is that um, the intelligence agencies were you know were there watching everything, right? Because for example, one of my close friends in Gilbert and Sullivan was Ronnie Pyles, whose father was Rudolf Pyles who I think may be in the movie there, uh, uh, one of you know the top, uh, I guess, a German-Jewish physicist who escaped from Hitler and was in England, then came, was part of the Manhattan Project. But Ronnie was living, Ronnie's older than me, so in, 19, in the early 1940s, he was like eight, nine years old, and his roommate in his father's house was Klaus Fuchs. Klaus Fuchs was an assistant, phys- a brilliant English, phys, uh, well, also German, I guess, uh, was the assistant to his father, Sir Rudolf Piles, later became Rudolf Piles. And so it was Klaus Fuchs who gave the, allegedly, gave the secret of the atomic bomb through the Rosenbergs to Joseph Stalin. Okay, so of course, and Ronnie's in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society with me. He's in the chorus. I'm like a lead, you know, and we were very close friends. So, And he was actually living at Hans Bader's house. Hans Bader's a key character in the movie Oppenheimer. So, of course, you know, and plus, there, this was all the time in the middle of the thing whether Oppenheimer was going to lose his security clearance. Yeah, this is all happening around me. You know, all, all my professors, they were very upset, you know, because you know, they didn't like Edward Teller. And these are all guys who are very close to Oppenheimer. And, uh, and like Phil Morrison, one of my undergraduate advisors, he was under investigation by uh, Joseph McCarthy, the House Un-American Activities Committee, for being a communist agent, being a Soviet agent. So, of course, Cornell was infiltrated by the C- by CIA and by the, the Brits and everything. You know, wow. it was all in the middle of this whole kind of Cold War thing going on right around me. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, with the guys building the atomic bomb. So, of course, the intelligence agencies are going to be keeping close watch on everything that's going on at Cornell in that period. Obviously, <laughs> you know, they were. I don't know if they do it today. Today, mm. they're not as smart as they used to be back then. And then how long, how long did it take after you started going to Cornell and working with these guys that were involved in the Manhattan Project? How long did it take for the CIA to contact you directly? Well, overtly, no. They never did back then. They never did back then. I was, you know, I was still a kid. Man, I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And, um, <clears throat> and then, let's see. So then what happened? So, okay, so uh, I kind of had a tempestuous... Um, I, went to, uh, I went to Brandeis. What's Brandeis? Brandeis at that time. This is you know after graduating Cornell uh-huh. graduate school. Uh, I could have gone to Stanford. Uh, uh, Leonard Schiff, the head of the physics department at Stanford, actually called me up in Ithaca, you know, through Hans Bethe, and invited me to go to Stanford. But I was married at the time. I was married to the president of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, <laughs> and uh, you know we didn't feel like want want to go that far and. I got what's called a Title IV National Defense Fellowship to go to Brandeis. Brandeis was a brand new campus uh, created by the rich Jewish money, but closely connected with Harvard and Boston University and MIT, you know, Waltham, Massachusetts. And it was a brand new campus, and I got a you know big fellow, you know, a lot of money to actually go there. So, and also my wife was given a, a fellowship to go mm. there. So we went to Brandeis. 
And, um, but it was really part of the, you know, we'd go to classes, i go to lectures at Harvard and MIT. It was, it was everything was kind of like connected. You know, it's like, I guess like Caltech and UCLA and uh, right. the Claremont Colleges, stuff like that. It was all, you know, fairly close network. And, um, and then what happened? So then I, um, oh yes, all right. Well, now we're going to get into some of the physics. Now, this is important because uh, last year, guys who I know, Alan Aspey and John Clauser and also Anton Zellinger, who I don't know, a guy from Austria, got the Nobel Prize in Physics for quantum entanglement. Okay. All right. So now we'll go back the summer of 1958, back at Cornell. It's the summertime. And I don't want to go back to New York. It's summer. And I'm offered a job being the night operator of the Cornell electron, one billion electron volt synchrotron uh, at the Newman Laboratory of Nuclear Studies up at Cornell to operate the thing at night. You know, they get paid. And so I take that job. And there's not much to do at night, you know, and it's comfortable, there's a big council, and they have actually a shower, and there's like a cot, I can rest, you know, you know just have to be there, like nice. the night watchman sort yeah. of thing, you know. But I'm reading this book, it gave me time, this book called Quantum Theory by David Bohm, who had worked with Einstein at Princeton. Bohm had been at Berkeley with Oppenheimer in the 30s, along with Philip Morrison, another of my Cornell professors, okay, and... Um, and uh, because uh, Bohm was considered to be, at the time, the heir to Albert Einstein. He was considered to be very bright, okay? And he was at Princeton working with Einstein, right? And uh, when he was there, he was a young assistant professor. There's a lot of political stuff, that, but I'll, I'll just skip over that, because he was involved with the Oppenheim and the communists and stuff, and mm-hmm. McCarthy wanted to investigate him and... So there was a lot of political turmoil going on there. This is around 1950, 51. And Bohm was teaching the course in quantum theory based on what's called the Niels Bohr-Copenhagen interpretation, which is kind of the, uh, that was like the main, that was the thing that Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer had gone to, you know, learn with Bohr and stuff like that. And so uh, I was reading the book. The, the book I was reading in, in 1958 now, the summer of 58, this book was from... David Bohm's lecture notes when he taught at Princeton. Mm. And it was the traditional, and but beautifully written book. Bohm was not a good lecturer. He didn't say, he was kind of very uh, shy, but he was a very, really good, clear writer, good writer. And, yeah. So anyway, I'm reading the book, and in the book there were two chapters that st- stuck out to me. One was a chapter in which the quantum waves, so these quantum waves, you know, quantum wave function, is likened to the, the mind wave, like the mind, as if the mind was a field, was a physical field, it'd be a quantum wave. That's the idea. And this is an idea which Niels Bohr first had at the, at the beginning of the 20th century when they, he was creating quantum theory. Because Niels Bohr, I think his father was a psychologist and he was involved with all these philosophers of mental stuff and consciousness, all that stuff. So, Bohr, so the connection of quantum waves to the mind and conscious processes was already part of the very beginning of quantum theory. And uh, David Bohm in his textbook, Quantum Theory, the Dover, he had Dover publication, uh, uh, points out this whole chapter on the, he calls it the analogy between quantum 
phenomena and mental processes in the brain. Can you give me, for myself and for yeah. people listening, yeah. can you give me a very sort of general idea of what quantum theory is, like for the layman to understand? Okay, basically it's this. Okay, I'm going to make the I'm going to use the Bohm, David Bohm's analogy. Okay, mind matter, right? Mind matter, mm-hmm. distinct duality between mind and matter. According to Bohm and Niels Bohr, in a very rough, I'm being very rough now. Very rough. Sense, the mind is this quantum wave function. You hear now about quantum computers, mm-hmm. okay? Quantum computers. Yeah, they operate on atoms, right? Yeah, or they could, uh, or, or even, uh, yes, yeah, or electrons, uh, you know, <clears throat> small. Let's, uh, yes, but but it's a, it's like a wave thing. It's like a, it's like a, it's it's a, it's an information field. It's an information. It's like, it's like a wave as opposed to a particle. Okay, has very, it's a wave that has very strange properties. Okay, and in the book, in the Bone book, he points out certain properties of our consciousness correspond to these quantum wave these weird spooky properties of these quantum waves it's like they're like pure information so the point is basically we just make the the intuitive guess the mind is a physical field like the electromagnetic field our minds and our brain it's a physical field but it's a it's a it's a quantum wave okay it's a quantum wave it's, it's which is kind of pure it let's put it this way it's in the, the universe itself is split into mati- into matter and mind, where the mind, all the quantum properties of the universe are the intrinsically mental properties of reality. Okay? Mm. Right now, Jack Sarafati is a quantum wave, and Danny is a quantum wave, Stephen's a quantum wave. We are quantum waves. But they're what are called giant quantum waves. They're, they're, it's kind of like superconductors and superfluid. The su- you know, we're, 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 what we are in biology, we are room temperature superconductors, organic molecular superconductors. And what's talking to you now, I'm, I'm a waveform. I'm like this, but this giant waveform, that's my mind. That's meant that my mind, which is interacting with the electrons and the molecules and the atoms of the brain. It's a two-way street. Mm. Okay, so my actually, it's technically it's called the further condensate, but that's another thing. We know exactly. Okay, let me just jump ahead. I, this is me. This is very nonlinear, but you know, we we'll go as as as, as it comes. In nineteen seventy-five, late seventy-five, up on the top of Knob Hill here, where we had this this facility that Lawrence Rockefeller was funding us, okay, you know, from the Rockefeller brothers. You mm-hmm. know. I'm with this guy named, uh, uh, with with this guy, George Koopman, young guy, older than me. Well, no, about my age, I guess. Maybe a little young. In any case, he's, he's like an army spook, CIA spook. He comes from a wealthy family. In uh, Connecticut, they're connected. He's connected with the New York Times, uh, the Salzburgers. He's like a cousin of Salzburgers, you know. And he's a uh, he's a uh, he's uh, he's also running. He ran a defense contractor called Inns Group down in Irvine, California. Is it Inns Group? Yeah, Inns Group. 
and they had army contracts, army uh, tank command, you have Air, Air Force, and uh, he's funding us. He's one of our funders. Uh, this is in the, how the hippies save physics. You know, Dave. Uh, David Kite, Hippie Save Physics. Right, right. Okay. Uh, David Kite, MIT professor, wrote a book about this whole period. And uh, I'm up there with this guy, Saul Paul Sirag, when this, right across from the, from the uh, Grace Cathedral, you know, the Episcopal mm-hmm. Cathedral. And uh, George says, um, Jack, you know, the CIA was formed because of the flying saucer Roswell crash. That's what he said. Okay, you know that one of the reasons the CIA was formed from the OSS because they considered it a a threat. And I know this is true because I know James Jesus. I know from James Jesus Angleton's grandson that James Jesus Angleton from the OSS, one of the early pioneers of the CIA, was very scared of the flying saucer phenomenon, and he had all the you know, all the stuff. I could tell you the whole story about that. What evidence do you have? Is there that he was actually aware of the UFO phenomenon? Well, from his grandson, I'm told that by his grandson. Yeah, he just told you that, or did he actually have like notes and documents that he? Well, that's a whole other story. Turns out all the nuts were done, but but yeah, that's a whole story that when his <laughs> okay, when James Jesus, Ang- there were three generations of CIA here. Right. There's, there's James Jesus Angleton's the grandfather, and there's a whole sort of side story which I won't go into now. And then his son, my friend's father, the second, Angleton the second, and all three of them, James has got them into the CIA. So there's three generations of CIA guys Angleton, related to Angleton. Mm-hmm. This is my understanding. When James E's Angleton died, all the Angleton papers went to the son, including all the UFO file. Okay, and then when my friend's father died, my friend, then these papers were locked in in a you know one of those storage units in Miami, you know, storage units. Miami. He's allowed to just have them. Well, I don't know who know maybe he wasn't allowed, but he had them. Trump had them too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know what the I don't know what the classification whether he had them legally or not legally, but he had them. Okay. Yeah. Right. This, at least so it's my I don't know firsthand I only know secondhand from the grandson alright right, the okay. story told to me okay okay so then when my friend when my friend Jim <laughs> goes to the, the storage unit to get the papers because he's telling you know, uh, apparently the feds had they said the federal agents came in and they took everything it was empty but right after his father died, his father was in the, they were all, you know, now he's retired from the, who knows if they're retired, but you know, mm-hmm. okay. Right. So, and he only had a few things that, yeah. But this is, this is how I met the grandson because of the flying, you know, because I'm into flying. So that's how I, that's how we all connected. That's the common connection. Right. All right. right. So I believe this. So, and it also fits in with what Kubin said, Jack, the CIA was formed because of Roswell. And there are two things the CIA wants to know. And, and also the Defense Department. One, how does consciousness work? And this is all in that book. How the hippies say physics. Yeah. Yeah. MIT professor. Harvard PhD, you know, he's he's a big full professor in charge of the uh, science technology stuff at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Go talk to him, mm-hmm. David Kaiser. He was here, sitting here just like you, you know. <laughs> and how um, old is he now? What? How old is David Kaiser? 
Oh, I don't know. He's in his forties. He's older than you. He's maybe he's fifty now. Oh, okay. Because this was like ten years. Yeah, he's, he's, he's probably he's probably late forties, okay. early early fifties. He had young children. Okay. And um, and you should go. Yeah, you should definitely interview him. And so uh, they say we want to know how does consciousness work, and that's the whole big story. The whole that's what the book's about. There's videos about that. Oh, by the way, there's also a Nova. I'm in Nova on on how they be saying there's a Nova thing, PBS Nova, and the bass. They show my picture twice, but they don't mention my name. Hmm. Screw that. <laughs> I'm not getting, well, you know, I'm kidding, but, you know, <laughs> but they should, yeah, they don't mention my name. But I'm there. You said my image is there, but, uh, you know, without not being identified twice. And so, um, and so, so George is saying it's around Christmas time, seventy-five, and Saul Paul Sarag was there. I thought Fred Wolf was there, but he wasn't there apparently. But you could, this guy Saul Paul Sarag is still alive. You should actually interview him. He knows a lot. Uh, and George says, "Yeah, CIA was created because of flying saucers, and we wanted, and there's the paranoia, all this weird stuff connected because they have telepathic communication, all that stuff, right? Uh, and uh, and so CIA wants to know how does consciousness work." Physics, the physics of consciousness, right? How does it work? That's why Rockefeller is funding, paying for us, and so is this guy named Werner Erhard and these guys from Stanford, you know, us. And and how do the flying saucers work? So those are the two things. I was basically pulled out of academia to work on this, which I've been doing for 50, 60 years, okay? Wow. This is what they want to know. And now, you see, now it all makes sense because of what's happening. Do you understand? Now it's this is real. There's no question. This is real. The skeptics are, you know, we. Uh, you should have me on maybe sometime with skeptics, and you know, let's have a debate on all this stuff. What's yeah, real? yeah. There's a reality war going on. So, how old are you when they pulled you out of the university? Well, uh, well, a little bit earlier. Uh, uh, yeah, actually, before that, I was uh, like 1970, 1969, 1970, early 71. 69, 71, they pulled yeah, 72. you out of, they, what university? Okay, well, wait, wait, okay, well, I have to, okay, we, these are a lot of flashbacks, right? These are, we're doing flashbacks. Let's let's go back a little bit. Uh, I have, have to, I was at Brandeis, okay. Oh, yes, and I was, and I had told you, I was reading the book on quantum entanglement, okay, which they got the Nobel Prize for in, 1970, in 2022, Nobel Prize for all this stuff I was reading back in 1958, mm-hmm. okay? But hardly anybody knew it. People at Cornell did not know really about entanglement. They didn't even know. I would start talking, Einstein, Podolsky, Rose, even Hans Bethe really wasn't into it. These guys, it was considered some kind of fringe thing. It wasn't mainstream at all. So I was just, because David Bohm was considered a little bit eccentric too, and even Einstein, Einstein boy, you know, even though Einstein was so great, he was considered a little bit, ah, Einstein, you know, he's, uh, he, you know, he's, he doesn't believe in quantum mechanics. There was all this, all this stuff going on. Mm. So I was like carrying the torch already at 1958, I'm 18 years old, 19 years old, about API, quantum entanglement. This is really important stuff, man. What's going on? Because it sounds weird, spooky, you know? And I could see the connections with consciousness and telepathy and all this weird stuff. Okay, so I get to Cornell. I'm, I'm sorry, I get to Brandeis from Cornell. It's like 1961. And I'm, uh, I'm in the library and I'm reading a, a journal called The Reviews of Modern Physics. And there's a paper called The Tau Theta Puzzle by a guy named David Inglis. 
and he starts talking about EPR, just what was I had read. What does that stand for? einstein Podolsky rosen experiment, 1935, where they predict entanglement. Just back in 1930, it was the einstein Podolsky rosen paper, entanglement. Okay. They also did another paper where they did about wormholes. See the two things? You wow. Know, I don't know if there's this guy, if you heard about ER equals EPR, about the big thing, the big problem is quantum gravity. How do you relate quantum mechanics to, to gravity? That's called the quantum gravity problem. That's the big, you know, that's Hawking and Penrose just got the, Penrose just got a Nobel Prize recently too, you know, all this stuff with, you know, black holes and the evaporation of black holes, you know, all, that's the frontier of, of physics today. And I was already there with the, the, with the entanglement part Back in 1958. So it's now, so I read this paper in 1961 at Brandeis uh, and about the entanglement, about how in, in, in high energy physics, the, these, these mesons, they split and they connected with each other. And the way the paper's written, it is what uh, a guy named Ray Chow, who's a retired uh, physics professor, semi-retired, who I, I kind of work with uh, uh, from Berkeley, Berkeley professor. And he... Uh, he calls a creative tension, what I call creative tension in physics. There are things we don't quite understand. We don't understand how can this, this quantum entanglement seems to allow faster than light communication. It seems to. It doesn't, okay? That this, somehow you could be on Mars and I can be on Earth. And if our, say, minds are entangled, that we could instantly, you can sort of know what my mind is thinking and I can know what your mind is thinking. It turns out in ordinary quantum mechanics, there's there, there, there's a fly in that ointment because it turns, there's a noise factor, so you can't really it can't really happen in standard quantum mechanics. But when you extend quantum mechanics, it can happen. That's a, a tricky thing. So, but the you know the connection between the mind, consciousness, telepathy. Einstein called entanglement spooky quantum. Oh, okay, uh, Einstein called it spooky telepathic action at a distance. What Einstein discovered, well, Schrodinger actually discovered a little bit before Einstein, but Einstein in 1935 wrote this paper with his students, Podolsky and Rosen, the famous what's called EPR paper that Kaiser's book, that the guys got the Nobel Prize for, basically, mm -hmm. what the Bell's theorem, all that stuff. Einstein didn't like it because it seemed to contradict relativity theory, that nothing can go faster than light. They, you see, that if, if, the, if the speed of light of 300 thousand meters per second in vacuum if that's the fastest you can communicate but yet this entanglement seems to be that there's an influence you know faster than light so what's going on here the quantum this is creative can, tension can okay. you explain briefly what rel the, uh, the theory of relativity is <laughs> theory <laughs> general gr explain yeah. explain me okay there are two pe theories people who may, may be listening who might not be okay might not know what okay that is. very i mean this is these are not easy things to answer okay the special theory of relativity okay here's what, what it's about I'm not going to do the math. What it's about. You're there. I'm here. And there's Steve over there. There's Steve, hey, the Steve. technician. Hey, Steve. Now. He needs a camera. Yeah. But however, we're, we're out in space. We're, we're in our spacesuits. We're all in space. This has to be done in vacuum. The, the whole theory of relativity only really works in vacuum. When you're inside matter, there are problems. There are problems. So, But here's the thing. And we're floating around in our spacesuits, and we have rocket. We you know we can, we we can use our rockets, but we can free float. Okay, when we're floating out in space, we are what are called inertial observers, inertial frame. That's very important. We're free, we're weightless. You know, there's no gravity. 
But wait, he's just floating around in space, right? And 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 Steve over there, he's doing something in the space stage. We're we're looking at him. We're watching. You know, we have tele. We're looking through our telescopes, whatever. We're just we're getting light signals from Steve, right? Okay. And we're measuring. We're seeing what he's doing. We're, we're sort of the measuring. We're measuring his finger, whatever. We're, we're like getting data. I'm getting my data. You're getting your data. Okay. But then we're moving relative to each other. But we're free floating. We're not, we don't. You know, we're, we're, for, we're both called inertial observers. But there's a relative velocity between us. Okay. We'll assume that that that. that that relative velocity between us, there's no acceleration. So I'm assuming there's a uniform velocity difference between us. But we're both, with our light, you know, through light signals, we're both measuring what he's doing, what Steve is doing. And by the way, light has a finite speed, right? Mm-hmm. So what I see, what, what I see uh, him doing takes, you know, is coming from his past, right? Because the light has to right, travel. Exactly. Of course, very fast. So yeah, what is the speed of light again? It's like... It's, it's 300,000 meters per second, which is 186,000 miles per second in vacuum. This is only in vacuum now. got to remember. Okay. 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 So now, here's the thing. The first principle of relativity, of special relativity, is suppose... Uh, you and I were still, we're what are called inertial observers. That's very important. We're inertial observers. We're free floating in space, our spacesuits. But suppose I want to somehow have a device, I measure the speed of light in vacuum, and I get a number. And you also measure the speed of light in vacuum, and you get a number. But we're moving relative to each other. So normally you would think, like, think of cars. You know, like think like the two people in cars move at different speeds, the ground, you know, and you would like subtract the velocity to get the relative velocities, you know, what's called the Galilean velocity addition law. Mm. That that we shouldn't all if we're both say if we're both looking at, at a light signal and I, and you're moving relative to me, we should see different uh velocities of light. We should see different light speeds. If you think of if you think of light like a car, okay? See if if you think okay, if, if there's a car and you're moving parallel to the car but at a different speed and you measure the relative speed of the car to you and I'm moving at a different relative speed we're going to get different relative exactly. speeds of that car yes. right but guess what when you do light and vacuum you get the same number interesting okay that, that's the base, that's the special principle of relativity okay okay now that's what Einstein in 1905 made everybody understand actually other people actually there was this guy Lorenz even before him and who who actually had it but didn't have quite the right idea and it turns out that okay there are two things in physics at the time there's what's called classical mechanics mm-hmm. uh, the mechanics motion you know automobiles stuff like that rockets mm-hmm. steam engines well that's also thermodynamics and that's the Newtonian theory of gravity, you know, with the 17th century to 19th century physics of mechanics, mechanical, the mechanical universe, clockwork, you know, clocks, clockwork universe. And then, um, but then at Maxwell, around the time of the Civil War, well, beginning of the, 19, uh, beginning of the 19th century, early 1800s, you had all these, uh, you know, 
Sir Humphrey Davy and Michael Faraday and all these guys, Thomas Young, and uh, they were doing electricity and magnetism and, and light, you know, and uh, all this stuff, optics. Well, Newton already was doing optics, but so, but what happened around the time of the Civil War, James Maxwell, who was a Scottish guy up in, I mean, he may have, been, may have been in London by then, but maybe in Scotland, and he was a mathematician. He took all this stuff at that, before Maxwell, before, which was before the American Civil War, Physicists, they knew there was electricity, they knew there was magnetism, and they knew there was optics. But they were all three separate branches of physics. Okay? Right. Okay? The different, the, they didn't know the, the connection. But what Maxwell got this great idea that he related the speed of light and vacuum to what's called the, mag the magnetic permeability of the vacuum and the electrical permittivity. So he, so Maxwell's able to... Um, this is Maxwell. This is light. Light speed. This is electricity. Electricity. I'll call it electric. And this is magnetic. So, okay, I'll, I'll get back to that. So this is, this is only one of the things that Maxwell did. So Maxwell had... This is the first unified field theory. First of all, okay, mechanics had to do with like particles, little little hard, massy billiard balls moving around through space and time colliding, right? That's mechanics, basically. You know, you're playing billiards. Playing billiards at the bar. Mm -hmm. You're doing Newtonian classical mechanics. Right, right, okay. Okay, okay, you know, conservation momentum, angular momentum, mm -hmm. and energy, and all that, that stuff. That makes sense. Okay, yeah, all right. But how does quantum compete with that? Well, this is pre-quantum. There's no quantum yet. There's no quantum yet. This is all, quantum kind of 100 years later. This is okay. before quantum. There's no, nobody had an inkling about quantum mechanics at this point. What Maxwell did was he, what are called Maxwell field equations, which unify electricity, magnetism, and light as one unified phenomenon. Sorry to interrupt, but this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Verso. We all know how important it is to get the right amount of nutrition, exercise, and sleep as we age. It's something I'm really passionate about and have discussed at length with doctors and nutritional scientists on this podcast. That is why I use Verso. Verso is a company dedicated into translating scientific breakthroughs into products that hold the potential to increase longevity. I take cell being every day to help combat aging by increasing my NAD levels with powerful ingredients such as NMN, transresveratrol, and TMG. NAD plus is arguably one of the most powerful molecules in the body, but declines with age. Keeping NAD plus levels high helps guide longevity genes called sirtuins. Sirtuins are called longevity genes because by activating them, they support overall health and slow down aging related effects by regulating important processes inside of cells. High NAD plus levels can improve your metabolism, repair damaged DNA, and ramp up energy production in your brain, immune system, and muscles. Now you can't take NAD plus as a supplement because it's too big for the cells to absorb. But NMN directly converts to NAD plus, while resveratrol activates your sirtuins, which increases their attraction for NAD. These two molecules act synergistically and increase your NAD plus more than just NMN on its own. Verso also publishes third-party testing from each batch produced to absolutely guarantee you're getting what you pay for. Head on over to ver.so and use the coupon code DANNY, it's spelled D-A-N-N-Y, to save 15% off your entire order or just go to ver.so forward slash DANNY. Back to the show.
And the field equations, there are four field equations. One is called Gauss's law. Gauss's law relates the electric charge to the electric field. And then there's what's called Ampere's law. Ampere's law relates uh, the, uh, the current, the electrical current to the generation of a magnetic field. Okay. And then there's what's called, um, there's a thing which says that there are no magnetic monopoles. That's sort of technical. And then there's what's called Faraday's induction law, which is how a time-changing magnetic field creates uh, an electric field. Okay. And, um, and then, uh, but then Maxwell also did something very important. Going back to Ampere's law, which they knew about, in which a steady current, say, creates like a solenoid, you know, the magnetic field around a coil. Uh, uh, he also showed that a changing electric field also generates a magnetic field. This is called the Maxwell displacement current. And when you put all these things together, you get a wave equation where things, he, which they predict electromagnetic waves, which mm -hmm. is, you know, television, radio, you know, tele <laughs> everything, you know, right? This is Marconi and then later, you know, Edison. Well, mm -hmm. well okay. So we predicted electromagnetic waves, hertz, and that's the beginning of the modern, you know, technological revolution. But the whole point in 1905, you see, the Maxwell's, there was, there was like a contradiction between um, classical mechanics and Maxwell's electromagnetic field theory, which is sort of analogous to today, where there's like a creative tension between gravity theory and quantum mechanics. So there was, you know, th this was a, a, okay. a problem. Got it. So what, what Einstein did in 1905, he reconciled. He showed that if you now just realize that in vacuum, the speed of light is invariant, what's called invariant. It's the same number, 300,000 meters per second for you, for, for Danny, as it is for Jackie. We're out in space, but we're freely, we're weightless. This only works if you're weightless. Okay. Okay. You got to be what I call inertial frames. Okay. It works approximately on the Earth because we're, you know, even though we're not really inertial frames, the correction is very small and the speed of light is so big. So, you know, people kind of like a sloppy, they don't, they, they forget about this. Okay. Mm. And then, but they make mistakes, which have to do with flying saucers, you see. Okay. But that's, I'm getting ahead of myself a little. So, no. Okay. So, so that's a special theory of relativity. Got it. Speed of light's the same for all different people, as long as they're moving uniformly relative to each other, they'll all measure the same speed of light. But as a result of that, certain things happen. It turns out there's something called time dilation. Mm. Okay? That if things are... So, so for example, uh, we have what are called cosmic rays, and cosmic rays have what are called mu mesons, certain particles that, that if you take a, a, a mu meson sitting in the laboratory... <clears throat> It takes a certain what's called it's like radioactivity, a certain half-life, certain amount of time for half of the mu mesons to decay into electrons and I guess neutrinos or something. Uh, but these cosmic rays coming in very fast, okay? Cosmic rays coming very fast, uh, and you look at they decay. Their decay rate is much longer. They live longer. Interesting. It's called time dilation. Okay, and this is a result of the fact that the speed of light is the same for all inertial observers. So there's that, and it also led to the e equals mc squared. 
And also, you know, the, the Einstein, that's where he gets the, the energy is equivalent to mass. Mm. There's mass. And that's the atomic bomb, right? Nuclear radioactivity, nuclear physics. And so, so, so just that one realization that the speed of light is the same for all inertial observers. But now we, we have to get the general relativity, okay? Gen, general relativity. Oh, and also, just to, before I go into, so to summarize, special relativity unifies uh, classical mechanics of Newton, well, generalizes it, so that it's consistent with Maxwell's electrodynamics. Everything is now a consistent picture, that the mechanics, you, he modified, he, cha- he modified, but it's now what's called relative, special relativistic mechanics fits in very nicely with Maxwell's electromagnetic field. Because okay. Maxwell's electromagnetic field equations, it turns out, are already demand that the speed of light be the same for you and me if we're moving uniform relative to each other. So, so Maxwell's theory, and it was, but people didn't realize that it was Einstein, and I guess to some extent maybe uh, Lorentz a little bit before Einstein, who realized that in order for, that in order for uh, Maxwell's theory to make sense, the speed of light cannot be different for two different inertial observers right. moving relative to each okay. other. All right, but what happens if we're accelerating? What happens if you t- what happens if you switch on your your rocket engine? You're out in space, and now you're accelerating. Now, you'll get a different speed of light from what I get. See, that's, so this, is, that's, this is the beginning of general relativity. General God. relativity has to do with several things. It has to do, well, you can do accelerating frames, what are called non-inertial frames. That's where you're out in space and you fire your, your rocket and, you're okay. and you feel G-force, mm. feeling G-force. Okay. See, we're getting that to the UFOs. Remember the UFOs, they're seeing... These UFOs, they go off 5,000 Gs. You know, you can't. I'm, I, a human cannot do more than like eight or nine Gs for a limited period of time. These are hundreds of Gs, 5,000 Gs. Right. Okay. And that's, they still, these guys, they still, I mean, even, did you watch the thing, uh, the uh, the Senate, uh, the Congressional Intelligence Committee, subcommittee. Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. Then you see when Commander Frave, the Navy pilots, they know, but we don't understand the physics. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, I even talked to um, Ryan Graves on my podcast. And he was All talking, right. He was see, now, well, you should have, so you should try to get, now in the future, you should get Ryan to come talk to me together and get and then i'll explain it to him but he's you know because they don't well, understand Ryan was only seeing it on his radar he never actually saw it no no but uh, I, i'm not ta- it doesn't matter i'm trying to it's, uh, so so it's uh, he's, he's confused he doesn't know how it could work i can explain to him how it works simple mm-hmm. elementary right. it's elementary physics of general relativity of einstein that's all they don't understand enough physics so to them you know right. they, well, they don't yeah. understand it and and the point is nobody understands it in the in the military mm. they don't understand it Elizondo doesn't understand it. Chris, none of these guys understand it, but they could understand it. They'd listen to me and a few other. You know, it's very easy to understand. We understand it perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's elementary, my dear Watson. Okay, we understand it theoretically, but we don't necessarily know. We don't know if anybody has been able to actually back engineer that. Well, we that's a different story. The back engineering—that's a whole different story. Right. That's we don't whole- know. We don't know if we can actually create that. We know how, theoretically, we know how anti-gravity works, right? Yeah. Like Bob Lazar explained this. No, no, times. okay. Now, Bob Lazar doesn't explain it. That's a whole other thing. Don't, Bob, Bob Lazar is not a physicist. Bob Lazar is what's called a useful idiot of the military-industrial complex 
who's been given a certain amount of information. Actually, that comes from stuff I was working on in the 70s with Abdul the Salam. At the, uh, uh, you know, some of what, when he talks about gravity A and gravity B, that's what was called the Salam theory, the F gravity, strong, mm-hmm. short range gravity, part of the nuclear physics. Yeah, we, I was, that part has some truth in it, although he doesn't explain it properly because he's not a physicist, okay? Let me see if I can regurgitate my layman view of how he explained it. He explained that there was a reactor inside of this sport model UFO saucer that when the saucer went from horizontal to vertical, it flew belly first. And what it did was it sort of displaced matter in front of it so that when the thing moves from left to right it sort of falls okay it doesn't okay number one i don't think it, you, that's probably your error I'm, i don't think he said matter he said it displaces the, the vacuum displaces the space itself yes that's what i meant okay yeah not matter that's different but yeah and that's warp drive that's what i'm talking about it's warp drive so he has he had part of what he says is true, but it's sloppy. It's not done properly. But but when he gets to the uh, nuclear, the one fifteen, you don't need any of that. You don't need that one fifteen. The stuff. element one fifteen. Yeah, yeah, it's stupid. It doesn't. And he never explains. So suppose I have a, a, a stable isotope of element one fifteen. What's the equations that show me how that affects the? Gra- how does that warp space? Show me how to do that. He doesn't know how to do that because it can't be done. Mm. See, it's bullshit. That's what's called pseudophysics. That's a, that's a story for idiots, but that's a story he's been given. He's been, he's like Benowitz, you know, the, the Benowitz story. He's been, you know, okay, I can see, I, I was, Lazar, he's like an all-American kid, and he was, he's, he's intelligent, he's a, he's a good salesman, he's articulate, mm-hmm. okay, he presents himself well, back, especially back in the 80s, and actually, he was into warp drive before I was. So somebody had told him, I mean, it's only later that we really that I that I really realized it was warp drive. Only actually last twenty years, maybe. So somebody, but that's made because see, this is time travel. So I think what's happening is that, and this is I'm speculating now, is that the stuff that we're going to build, Sarfati Space Corporation, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. is going to make that some of that stuff was sent back in time to the '80s to Area 51. Where Lazar comes into the picture, and um, maybe, maybe one of the guys are in the saw. Maybe one of the maybe, maybe the time travelers, you know, who go back to Area Fifty One. I'm now I'm, I'm I'm spending. You know, I'm not. I'm, this is speculative. I'm not saying this really happened, but it would make sense. This is a possible explanation. And so the the guy from the future came back and told Lazar. Or told some of the guys there, the, the scientists there, who then told the czar, but they watered it down. They gave what's called disinformation. Mm-hmm. What, what did you call Limited it? Limited hangout. Limited hangout. They gave that, yeah. So what something it is- Something a little bit, a sliver of something that's true. Yeah. And, and what it, but uh, not what, the whole pie. Yeah, but yeah, right. Um, and also, they, that may have been done deliberately so that uh, uh, straight physicists like me would right away dismiss, oh, this is crazy, you know, which is part of the stigma, the whole stigma, because they don't want the Russians to know, they want the Chinese, you know, whatever, national mm. security, all that kind of crazy stuff, okay? So that could be. So I was actually surprised when I actually first listened to Lazar talk about gravity and gravity B, because that's kind of what I'm working on, but he didn't explain it you know, the way I would explain it. Mm. So he had a piece of it without really understanding it. And again, as I said yesterday, there are different levels of physics. Uh, there's community college, Right, associate degree, 
There is four-year college, undergraduate, bachelor degree. There's then there's the master's level and then the PhD level. Lazar is a smart associate degree level type tech, electrical technician, you know, yeah. physics technician. He's that's that's what his job was. What he was, you know, he's not, you know, and he lied. The problem is he also he lied about his academic background. He said he went to MIT and Caltech. He didn't. Right. There's no evidence of it. But no. but there's an argument to the MIT thing. There's an argument that if um, someone like Los Alamos wanted him to acquire some sort of specific knowledge, they could have sent him to MIT covertly to sort of learn something as yeah, part of some po- dark problem. That's possible. Program. That's possible. But it's clear to me that... Uh, Lazar doesn't know any math. He doesn't know physics. He doesn't know. Th- he's not a theoretical. Right. See, that's, he would have write down equations, right. and I could tell right away. But he's just given a script. He's reading off a script. He didn't create this. It's not his creation. Right. And he was, he's reading off a script that somebody gave him. Now the people who gave him that script, they may know what I'm talking about, but it wasn't Lazar. We don't know who Lazar spoke to back mm. in Area 51. Okay. I want to get back to the point when the CIA actually reached out to you and wanted you to work on some of this consciousness stuff. Yeah, well, that's what I was telling you. That's George Koopman. Uh, well, that's also... Okay, wait, I got to go back a little bit. How did that... Can you, like, walk me through how that works? Okay, all right. How well, do they... Do they do they show up at your doorstep? Do they send well, you... Well, sometimes... Man- they have many different levels. So, first of all... Okay, first of all... You're just a... You're you're how old at this point? Uh, and uh, then I'm about 35. You're about 35. No, no, that, but it happened way before then. No, that's, that's already... Uh, that's a, that's a, I want to know what it's like to be a guy like you in your 30s to be contacted by the well, CIA and pulled out of academia and start working on stuff well, like conscious, like what is consciousness right, and okay. telepathic let's, communication. Let's go, let's go back. We have, to, we have to backtrack a little now. Okay. Let's see, where do I start? Where do I start? Uh, okay. First of all, I'm back. I have to start now where I guess I'm at UCSD La Jolla. Okay. This is like the mid '60s, the mid '60s. Okay, and um, I'm a graduate student at physics department in La Jolla, and I'm part of in what called Keith Bruckner's group. Keith Bruckner, you have to check him out. He's dead now, but he was. <clears throat> there's a thing called the Jasons. Yes, I've heard of that. The okay, Jason. Yeah, okay. I read. I actually just finished reading Annie Jacobson's book called um, "Okay, The Pentagon's Brain," okay, so, all about the creation of okay, DARPA. So my my the guy my the guy I was working for UCSD was the head of the Jasons. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, you know, at, at least part of you know, they would have meetings of the Jasons, and I would go to some of them at UCSD in La Jolla. They created like the first computer, right? And the internet. No, no, I think that was before the first. No, the first computer was back in the fifties already. That's 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 when I my phone calls were the first computer uh, back okay. then. That's a Princeton. That's the Aniac and Maniac. Whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, no, Maniac. No, the, the, no, I don't think there were no Jasons. That's before. That's that's okay. that's, that's, okay. that's right after close after Roswell. You know, all right. So uh, the Jasons so, are around the time of Vietnam, I think. Yes, yes, okay. and this is uh, yeah sixties. I'm there in sixty five. Right, sixty six, sixty seven, and I would go to the but you know I would sit in on some of the Jason meetings. On on um, you know various things, and Keith Bruckner was like chairing it, and also La Jolla was a beautiful place. Everybody wanted to come to La Jolla. You know, Edward Teller would, was there a lot. John Wheeler, John Archibald Wheeler, Fred Hoyle from England, a lot of uh, a lot of people from England. For Her- Herbert Froelich, Bert Matthias. It was you know a pay, everyone. It was a beautiful place, La Jolla, and, you know the beach and you know and what's called the uh, 
the uh, uh, the oceanographic scripts oceanographic was part of the camp. The place is amazing. Yeah. So, so so in fact, okay, there's there's a, a very good book you should read actually by the Benford twins, Gregory Benford, one of what called Timescape, science fiction novel. I was he actually I'm actually in the book. There's a composite of me. You know, I was. I was part of the Benford twins. We were all graduate students together. Okay. And he writes this story. It's all about what's really happening. He writes a story about the future creating the past, the influence, the communicating with the wow. past. It's in Timescape because that's part of Fred Hoyle. See, Fred Hoyle. Okay, Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle used to come there a lot. Mm-hmm. This is Fred. What I'm working on is Fred Hoyle's theory. Fred Hoyle wrote a book, The Intelligent Universe. Fred Hoyle. Okay, Fred Hoyle. Let's see now. How is, let's see, Dennis Shiyama. Fred Hoyle was the Isaac Newton Professor of Astronomy at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. I think when Fred Hoyle retired, Stephen Hawking took Fred Hoyle's job. But Fred Hoyle used to come all the time to uh, UCSD La Jolla from okay. Cambridge. Okay. If you read Fred Hoyle's book, he has everything Jack Sarfati talks about already in Fred Hoyle's book, The Intelligent Conscious Universe, in which the future is influencing the past. Okay? And this is now part of quantum theory, what's called the Yakya Aharonov. There's a whole thing, what's called weak measurement theory. Today, all of quantum entanglement, all the spooky telepathic action at a distance, can be neatly explained, consistent with Einstein's theory of relativity, that there's no signal fast in the speed of light, but things can go backward in time. Everything is now explained. We have a unified conceptual picture connecting relativity, solving, resolving the creative tension between relativity and quantum entanglement, or non-locality, spooky action. We understand it all. It's too much to really explain, you know, but just so you have to take my word for it. You know, if you want to do other things later, we can. Uh, so we understand that. And that to... was partly from Fred Hoyle, from Fred Hoyle coming to La Jolla, influencing me and the, the Benford. The Benford twins wrote a science fiction novel based on Fred Hoyle's theory. Okay. So everything I'm telling you now, you want to get into it, it's Timescape by, the Benford, by Gregory and Jim Benford. It's set in La Jolla. In the seventies, and it's very much like what I'm. It, it's it's art uh, imitating reality. Everything that's happening now is kind of like what's in the Timescape book. So read Timescape. <laughs> you know, it, that sets the stage. That's what I'm talking wow. about. But it's a fictional story. That's <clears> more <throat> like re, it's more reality than reality. You know, okay. Than, all right. All right. So where are we at? So we. I was. I was trying to get to the point where the CIA actually contacted you and wanted right, you to work. Okay. With so them. wait. Okay. So first. Okay. I want you to walk me through that. We. I yeah. know we've gotten kind of yeah. like okay. veering off topic. So I, it's the mid '60s. So I'm involved with with Keith Buckner, and it's full of CIA. You know, military. It's the the Jasons, right? The so, Jasons. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all they're hanging out there too. Harold Urey, I mean, um, did Brooklyn, I guess Brooklyn was probably part of Manhattan Project too. now come to think of it. Oh, he did something, yeah, I guess nuclear physicist, nuclear matter. Um, so, uh, okay, so, and then I was also hanging out, going up to Caltech with Richard, meeting Richard Feynman, who I met, I first met, met Feynman in 1963. And, um, and I, um, so uh, it's a, the summer of 66, okay, so I'm, 
invited, I go to uh, NATO, a NATO summer school in nonlinear physics at Werner Heisenberg's Max Planck Institute in Munich. You know, I'm a graduate, yeah, summer. And I was also invited, through beta, through all these guys, I was also invited to Her Majesty's Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell, right near Oxford, out of Oxford. That's the, that's like their Lawrence Livermore back. That's you know, the nuclear weapons, nuclear reactors. I was invited there too. For, so at the beginning, so at the first, at the beginning of the summer, I'm in Munich uh, with Heisenberg. You know, Heisenberg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Every day, you know, having tea with Heisenberg, you know, cookies and Heisenberg. Then we even went to the beer halls and had some beer, you know, afterward. Uh, every day, five days a week, I've been mm-hmm. I've been Schwabing, which is kind of like North Beach, Schwabing mm-hmm. in Munich. Uh, it's, you know, it's a Bohemian, like sort of like North Beach. Uh, but in this big park, I would get up in the morning, walk up, take the trolley car. There's a trolley goes to the end of the mm-hmm. line, and that's the Max Planck Institute. And uh, John Wheeler, Archibald Wheeler, you know, who worked with Tel, but created the fusion, the hydrogen bomb, and you know, all that stuff. All these, yeah. and we was I was there for you know, this guy who was there. Uh, Kruskal, Rostov. In any case, a lot of these famous guys, you know, all, okay. wet, all related to the nuclear weapons and stuff like that. They're there. Okay. It's a NATO. NATO is paying for it. Right. Uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And then after that, uh, I left. I actually left a week or two earlier because I had to get to, to Harwell. They didn't like that. Then I meet. I was also married. Meet my wife. We go to. I spend. Uh, uh, Several weeks in Harwell, uh, at um, Ridgeway House, uh, we're billeted. At Ridgeway House was a former uh, RAF officers' quarter, and you know there were a bunch of the airfields. The Air Force, U.S. Air Force, still had, and actually still does. I think you know there's a bunch of U.S. Air Force, British Air Force facilities around right. there. That's where the Spitfires and the Battle of Britain. They were, all, you know, some of them were there. And some of these guys from the RAF, they were still there at Harvard. They were working for the the, the atomic energy thing. They would sell these guys, including MI, you know, military intelligence officers. I was, you know, living with them. It's like an officer's mess. You know, it's like it's like a hotel okay. you know, on the campus of the atomic energy research. Thing. Okay. And while there, I uh, yeah, it also it was a very nice place. I was at, I was in the theoretical physics division at Harwell. And uh, it was like being at a university, you know. Okay. And I, they, I would go to Oxford. I would go down to the University of London, and uh, and when going down to Imperial College, University of London, with Abdus Salam, and uh, Goldstone, and any case, it was all these guys. And this was Higgs, you know, the Higgs mechanism, and they were all like developing this stuff. And I would go back to Harwell and talk about what they were doing at Imperial College, and there was this young guy about my age, maybe a little older, named Marshall Stoneham. He's a solid state guy. And he, so he was, you know, so I, I, as a result of my going down to Imperial, Marshall and I wrote this paper called um, The Goldstone Theorem and the Jan Teller Effect, which uh, was published, this is 1966, was published in the Proceedings of the Physical Society of London. And what it does, it shows how the stuff that they're doing, that they were doing at Imperial, 
which is sort of related to the Higgs mechanism in high energy physics, how it relates to condensed matter physics. In this case, it's how a distortion of a lattice, just a crystal lattice, a distortion kind of creates, in a way, a kind of room temperature superconductor. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a, a little bit, but there are connections to all this current interest of room temperature superconductors, mm -hmm. L99, even though it doesn't work, but they're claiming because of the distortion. Anyway, it sounds to me like maybe it's, they're talking about the on-teller effect. So this, even though that particular thing they're doing does, didn't work because they're not accurate enough, that we may be able to get it to work because I'm now seeing a connection. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. This is just, you know, I'm just... Mm -hmm. It's still half-baked. Mm -hmm. I think the stuff I did at Harwell in 1966 uh, with, with uh, Marshall Stoneham, that that may be applicable to getting room temperature superconductivity uh, along the lines as LK99. I could be wrong, but it's just, mm. a, you know, it's just an idea that we have to think about. This is all too new. But, so in any, but, but in any case, this paper that I wrote with Marshall... Marshall actually wrote most of it. In the 1980 American Journal of Physics, Papers on Symmetry and Physics is a recommended paper. You know, one of the recommended, as being an important paper, okay? Uh, and at that point, so already there's, uh, okay, so I go back to, uh, I go back to uh, La Jolla, all mm -hmm. right? And um, so what happens then? Um uh, I don't know. Should we take a so I'm, I'm, so the, so the back of this book? Yeah, the Great Race, Physics, yeah. Paranormal, Time yeah. Travel, and UFOs. Yeah. yeah, it says the thriller, the thrilling true story that right. uh, was left out of David Kaiser's book, How the Hippies Saved Physics. How yeah. Jack Sarfati, asked by the CIA yeah. with the Russians watching, solved the hard problem of consciousness. Yes, remote viewing psychokinesis and how the time traveling warp drive ufos that the u.s navy is defenseless against really work yes so i guess what i'm getting at is how did the cia ask you to do this well this happened over a long period it wasn't just one so thing. it wasn't one thing that happened no this was it was sort a bunch of, like, of things bunch so you were basically just surrounded by military intelligence people yes and so the cia never actually said hey can you do this for us? No, but they did. I was just telling you, this guy, George Kuhlman, CIA, he was, you know, he's, well, he's army. But I say CIA also mean the, the, the whole industrial community. Okay, I see. The, I and, understand. You know, you know, and, but there's more. I was actually, you know, later on, I mean, many, many, many encounters. Many. Uh -huh. There's this guy, Harold Chipman. This is now the mid-1980s. Harold Chipman, who was... Um, at the time, chief of station of the CIA headquarters here in San Francisco. They have an office. Mm. I won't say where it is. But he had previously been head of Berlin Station CIA during either the 60s or the 70s. Uh -huh. Okay, you can look, look him up. He's you know, people write about him. How it should right, be. and right. he he was funding me. You know. Okay. And uh, and he. Um, uh, and he was involved in MK Ultra back already back in San Francisco. Whenever they did in the late fifties, you know. Yeah, I saw. I was looking up yesterday. We were walking down the street. I saw the Hate Ashbury Clinic wasn't that far away from here. Well, yeah, nothing's far. I mean, you know, yeah. Hate Ashbury Clinic's like five minutes down the road from here, right? No, no, that's not the Hate Ashbury. No, Hate Ashbury's far. It's not five minutes. Oh, really? I thought it was closer. No, 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 no. It's not, no, It's about fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes. It depends on. Traffic. Oh, okay. It's over at the Hate Ashbury. It's a different part of town. Okay. It's not that far. It's maybe two right. miles. Yeah, it's pretty know, close. You know, no, I mean, this is a small town. Um, 
So uh, tell me again, who specifically pulled you out of the university? Well, wait. That's what. Well, that's what we have to get to. Okay, we'll get to that. Uh, that's, just real quick. We, you know, we, we let's just. Well, do it real no, because they say that's the put off. That's how I'll put off. That's how I'll put off. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. That's all. That, that's that into it. Okay. So, um, <laughs> all right. I'm teaching at San Diego State. Young assistant professor. I'm there with this guy Fred Wolf, and um, I'm also doing. Uh, you know, I'm split between. I was singing in the San Diego Civic Opera and also the local San Diego State. Um, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan Society again, doing a bunch of shows, and also trying to be an assistant professor. And uh, my wife at the time, Roberta, she was a, a professor of English at San Diego State. <clears throat> Any case, you know, my, I had a pretty full schedule, and she didn't like. Was she? She thought I was having an affair. I wasn't. So my wife got pissed, got a little paranoid, and so I wind up getting a divorce, like in seventy, sixty nine, seventy, around nineteen seventy, I guess it was. And this guy, this other crazy uh, physics guy, uh, who's a, a bit older than me, he's an associate professor, I'm an assistant professor, he winds up getting a divorce at the same time. So we move in together, you know, on the edge of campus, like the odd couple. I don't know if you <clears throat> saw that movie with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm kind of like the slob Walter Matthau. And, and Fred Wolf is, uh, is kind of like Jack Lemmon. And uh, we're at the edge of the campus. And uh, it's like the Christmas time of 73, is it? Or no, it's Christmas time of 72. Yeah, Christmas time of 72. And Fred gets a phone call from his friend Bob Tobin from Chicago, where Fred went to high school. And Bob and Fred were on the football team together. And Bob is, uh, has made a lot of money in the you know the meat, the commodities market in Chicago. And he's kind of a zany artist guy. So uh, Bob says he's, he's, he wants to come to San Diego. So, you know, yeah, come on. We, you know, we're, you know, like you, I mean, we're, everything's pretty loose. <clears throat> so Bob shows up. And then a strange thing happens. And he says, he said the reason he came is that he uh, got a book contract and a television contract about this guy, this is here's the Mossad, about the Israeli psychic Uri Geller. You know who, does the name Uri Geller ring a bell? No. You? Oh, you don't even know Uri Geller? Nope, no clue. God. Israeli psychic? Yes. Turns out he's a Mossad agent. Okay. This is the Mossad that you're so interested in. Okay? Yeah. We didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh God, you don't know about Uri Geller. So um, Uri Geller today is back in Israel. He's a close confidant of Bibi Netanyahu. Okay. They were in the para- in the '67 war together in that elite paratroop unit. Right. Know, which there were two right. Netanyahu's. One brother got killed later in Tebi and all that stuff. This is all part of that. Okay. But we didn't know at the time. This is now 1972. And we didn't know what he was talking about. We were like, we didn't know who, who Uri Geller, what? Paranormal. So, okay, so he says he's coming to, uh, <clears throat> he's coming to, uh, he's got a lot of money. He says, you don't have to take, you know, take, a, take time off, you don't have to teach. So this is, this is the CIA operation, right? And he says, you don't have to teach. I got plenty of money. And um, I'll cut through a bunch of details. <laughs> who said this? Bob Tobin. Bob guy. Tobin. Bob Tobin comes from Chicago. 
Got it. You know, and wants um, and he 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 wanted Fred. He didn't even know about me at that point. He wanted Fred to explain using quantum mechanics how consciousness works and how uh, the paranormal, how Uri Gell is able to bend metal with his mind, psychokinesis. <laughs> okay, bend spoons and stuff like that. He actually bent spoons with his mind. Well, they, that was the claim. A lot of guys like Amazing Randy said it was a magic trick, but it's not so simple as that. Is I mean, there magicians can do it. Doing this? Magicians can do what Uri magicians can do some of what Uri Gellert does. They can't do everything Uri Gellert does. And Uri Gellert is a magician and at times he did cheat and do the tricks that the magicians which they caught him on. But he didn't always do it that way because they can't always control his power, all right? So any case, we didn't know, we didn't know anything. We were pretty naive. So Fred, and then, uh, and Bob is a, you know, he's a, he's a nice, he's a zany guy. And then so Bob says, yeah, he includes me in it too. So, okay. So Bob, and Bob leaves. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, Fred Wolf gets a call from Paris from a friend of his who's in the French University, the physics department, who Fred had worked with on a time. Remember, Fred was doing a nuclear explosion physics, you know, Lawrence Livermore, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, and uh, this French friend says, listen, this guy's leaving for a couple of months. Do you want to, why don't you come to Paris, teach a course just one day a week? You know, you can teach in English if you want. And Fred said, okay, you know, sounds good. Especially since we have this also this extra money from Bob Tobin says whenever you need money don't wor- worry about money, I want you to work on this other thing, and then uh, Fred also then gets a call from John Hasted who's head of physics department at the University of London in what's called Birkbeck College, similar office says look we want you to come and you could also teach you could go back and forth between Paris and London and teach these courses just you know, and then I get a call from London from Abdus Salam, who's the head of Imperial College. I remember I mentioned him when I was at Harwell. Mm-hmm. And, he, um, and he says he's running an institute in Trieste, Italy, called the International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, which is where the Russian physicists, the African, Indian, Chinese, American, you know, all over South America, international, UNESCO, United Nations, and this is where I'm working on what Lazar calls gravity A, gravity B. He calls it that. That's how we call it, okay? But that's the thing. I have been working on that already. And Abdus Salam, who later got a Nobel Prize, by the way, <clears throat> um, he was also working on it. And so he said, come on, come to Trieste. I'll give you a job. Yeah. All right. So, so suddenly, a few weeks after Bob leaves, saying, listen, you don't have to stay here. I got plenty of money. I want you guys to work on this Uri Geller thing. How does physics explain consciousness? Yeah. There's no mention of flying saucers. Just consciousness, you know, paranormal, bending metal. How could the mind bend metal? You know, uh-huh. things like that. Telepathy, right? And so uh, here we are. So we're getting ready. So, okay, so I, I'm living, I have a girlfriend at the time. You know, I had met her, but she had previously worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence at the uh, American Embassy in London, which is kind of interesting. But so, so she's with me. <clears throat> and um, she, uh, it's now 1973. It's 20 years after my phone calls. Okay? 
Okay. And I hadn't been thinking about the phone calls. They were not in my mind. And um, and so I'm scheduled to fly to London and then on to Trieste. And it's now the weekend before I'm, my flight is leaving San Francisco on a Wednesday. It's now the Sunday morning before I'm flying out. And I'm with my, was staying, my girlfriend and I was staying at her mother's house in Carmel Valley. Down the Carmel Valley, and I'm in bed. It's Sunday morning, so this is now time travel. Now, it's Sunday morning. Sharon's mother brings in the San Francisco Chronicle Sunday paper. Okay, I'm in bed looking at the paper. I open up the San Francisco Chronicle magazine section, and there's a big multicolor major spread on Stanford Research Institute testing Uri Geller for his paranormal powers. Maybe that seems to be right. Okay. I said, hey, this is just what Bob Tobin wants to give us money to <clears throat> to work on. Right. Right? Was that me or you? That was you. Oh, yeah. How's that happening? Huh. So, or that's, or that's somebody's listening. That's Uri Geller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's Mossad. Yes, it's Mossad. <laughs> okay. They're listening. Okay. All right, so. So I say, hi, this is weird, you know? So Monday morning comes, and I say, I got to call these guys. <coughs> Get on the phone, call the Stanford Research Institute. And this guy, this Irish guy, a thick Irish accent, Irish accent, Brendan O'Regan, gets on the phone. He says, ah, Dr. Safati, we were hoping you would call. Do you realize how weird that is? Yes. I, who could arrange that I'm gonna? First of all, I, I you know that I'm gonna pick up the damn news, uh, newspaper, read, look at the article, and then decide to call him. This could only be had. There's something really high. This is Twilight Zone now, right? I said we were hoping you would call before you left for England. So you already knew I was going to England. Okay. Whoa. Okay. So okay. So. So, and so and they said, could you just drive up? They knew where I was. Yeah, not far from the, you know, the car. It's an hour and a half. <laughs> Again, said, can you come up to Stanford? We'd like to talk to you. Get in the car. And um, I get there. And first thing, I meet Brendan. <laughs> and he takes me across from SRI to what's called the Wedex Institute. <clears throat> And I, who do I meet? I meet, excuse me, meet Edgar Mitchell. You know who he was? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, Edgar Mitchell. He's the head of the project. The guy who walked on the moon, astronaut, right. Edgar right. Mitchell. I meet Brendan O'Regan. He takes me to meet Edgar Mitchell. Okay. Then, this is where Jacques Vallée comes in. Jacques Vallée's involved in the CCs. Okay. I didn't know, I had no idea who Jacques Vallée was. Then I'm told, oh, uh, Jacques Vallée has arranged a meeting at this guy, Dean Brown. Dean Brown's house, you know, in Menlo Park somewhere. Dean Brown's one of the original Silicon Valley venture capital guys, rich guy. You know, they're all, so they're all, this is all intelligence, right? You look back now, it's all, there's a book. Third, you see that book, Third Eye Spies? It's all about that. It's about the CIA. That's all. That's how Russell Targ. Have you, you have you talked to Russell? She talked to Russell Targ. He's still alive and he's ninety, so you better talk to him fast. Call him up. I'll give Russell Targ. 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 
Todd, you ever seen the film Ghostbusters? Of course. Well, that Ghostbusters, that's Hal, that's that's Russell Targ. He's the ghost of the guy, you know, the gawky guy. Oh, wow. It's based on Russell Targ. Really? Yeah, yeah. Of course. God, you see. Right. I don't so, know anything. Right, okay. That's so, why I do this. I so, in any case, so Russell's still, he's 90 years old, so I'll give you his contact, you call him. Okay. Because he was there. You know, he's a, and and so they're supposed to, Jacques Vallée has arranged a meeting for Jack, for me, and Hal put off and bunch of guys, you know, some psychologists. They were all, some of them were CIA, I guess. I didn't know who they were. And um, <clears throat> so we go there, but Jacques never showed up for some reasons. I don't know, which is interesting. You could ask, if you ever, he goes, hey, Jacques, you arranged this meeting for Jack Sarfati and Brendan O'Reilly at SRI in 1973. How come yeah. you never came? You know, he well, goes, when I leave here, I'm going straight to his apartment, so I'll ask him when I get there. And- no, do, are you really? No. no all right. Well, you should, actually. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now. Yeah, so, we're going to go record in this okay, library. Okay, now. The important point is this is a CIA operation now public because everybody the books written about it. Okay, it's in how the hippies say physics. All right, <clears throat> but the point is, uh, part of that meeting, you can listen to it because they the CIA they tape recorded the entire meeting. Okay, and somebody said, guy Saul Paul had I had like an hour of it, hour and a half, not the whole thing. But you can hear me. It's online. It's on SoundCloud. You can actually hear me. 1973. Really? Oh, yes. How do you search for this and find this? It's my, just Jack Sarfati SoundCloud, CIA. I, Jack I, Sarfati I CIA meeting SoundCloud. Yeah, whatever. I'll give it. Remind me. I'll send it. Okay. Yeah, you can find it easily. It's fine. Okay. It's on Google. Okay. <clears throat> and it's, and in there you can hear Russell Targ. The subject, uh, this rabbi, this rabbi, this is all Mossad too. It's all a combination. This rabbi, I forget his name, this crazy rabbi. Forget his <laughs> name. He's still alive. Hertek, Jim Hertek. He's a UFO rabbi, flying stars of the rabbi. A UFO rabbi. Kabbalah, you know. You know That's you amazing. Know, new age, yeah. Okay. I think he's still alive. And Russell knew him. So Russell starts talking about Jim Hertek and the UFOs as time machines coming back from the future. So Russell Talk talks about it. Yeah, I'm like, you'll hear it. And and then I said, ah, <laughs> I remember that. Hey, listen, what happened to me? Mm. And I tell the story that I told you. I tell the story. And Brendan O'Regan says, oh, yeah, we have data, several hundred cases of kids. We have data of that. We know about this. What? Okay, so there you go. What is, so what's going on here, Ben? This, and you can hear it yourself. You don't take my word for it. And you can talk to Hal Portoff is there. Now, you should definitely get Hal Portoff and Russell Todd before they die. They're almost 90. You know, Hal Portoff is not going to last that much longer. Mm. You know, he's five years old. He's, he's going to be 89, 87. What is his story? Because he, he's interesting to me because he was a Scientologist at one point. No, that's bullshit. That, that makes sense. No, he admitted he was. There was a no, video. No, 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 no. That, that's exactly. You don't understand the context of that. Well, here's the interesting thing about the Scientology yeah. stuff is because we talked about this last night. Jack Parsons. Yeah, and I'm yeah. There's all these. Who's like the father of rocketry or whatever? Whatever yeah, his name. L. Ron Hubbard. I know all. He I was know friends the, with L. Ron Hubbard yeah. and Alistair Crowley. Yes, I know all about that because I I'm, I'm one step removed from that. I'm connected with that. It's all connected. See, there's no accidents here. Okay. The um, but wait. Let's let's first. Uh, Hal put. Let me explain Hal put up. First of all, Hal put off. And he never told me the details, indicated that what happened to me with the phone call happened to him. He may not have gotten a phone call, but, but he didn't want, you know, he's, he's a, remember, he's, he's that. He, Hal Putoff, I was told by Christopher Green that Hal Putoff at times 
has held the highest possible security clearances. He was an officer in the Naval Intelligence before. He got his PhD, you know, electrical engineering and um, at, from Stanford. And he, uh, and it was, you have to talk to Russell Targ and Halpoff. They have to tell you the history, how the CIA got involved with them, okay? Okay. But Portoff himself was already in that. Portoff told me that he explored, as part of the project to explore psychic power with the CIA, he went to Scientology meetings. Doesn't mean he was a Scientologist. He, was, he may have joined, you know, officially just, you know, because he wanted to see what they had. It was L. Ron Hubbard. We know all about Jack Parsons. Uh, if you read about Jack, if you read, what is it, uh, Silent Angel, Strange Angel? You've seen the book, the Jack no, Parsons book? No. There's a book, a biography. Strange Angel? Strange Angel. It's all about all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> Jack Parsons worked with Frank Molina. Back in the 1930s, uh, you know, on all this rocket stuff, Jado, they started, uh, what is it, Aerojet, General, the Jado? Aerojet, yeah. yeah Aerojet. Yeah, they, there's, a, there's actually a big Aerojet base that's abandoned now in South Yeah, Florida. yeah, this is all Frank Molina and Jack Parsons. And Jack Parsons was supporting, was financing uh, Alistair Crowley. And, and and L. Ron Hubbard was, I think they knew L. Ron Hubbard. I knew people, some of the people who supported me were, worked with L. Ron Hubbard and Pusharis. All, all plus, it's a science fiction. You know, Walter Breen. All these guys knew each other. It's a small world. Why uh, are all these guys so, why are they so- They're all intelligence. Into, they're all part of the OSS, that sort of stuff. But why are they so into the occult Well, and all this angels and demons type stuff? Well, Jacques, why they are, that's good- uh, okay, short, short answer. Because angels and demons of the Bible are real. They are the extraterrestrial time travelers. Okay, mm. that's why. So it's all real. All the stories in the Bible are real. They're based on, they're not, you know, they're, you know it's like, you know, they're distorted. But but all the stuff, angels and demons, you know, uh, Paradise Lost, John Milton and Lucifer and Satan is real. They're all real. These are high, the Greek gods are real, the Egyptian gods, you know, all that stuff, Stargate, they're all coming back. It's all true. These are all time. Okay, let me explain. Okay, let me give the content. <clears throat> and this is why the guys in the sand, they, this is those guys who Lazar's talking about. That's They know this. This guy, John Ramirez, who's CIA retired, he knows all this. He's one of my supporters. John Ramirez, get in touch. I have his email. He's just remind me, get in touch. What's happening is this. The physics of UFOs, this tic-tac, everything that the Congress with their idiots, they should be talking to me. They're so stupid, okay? You listen to Jack, you call Jack, talk to me, okay? You talk to me. You don't, talk, you don't need anyone else. You talk to, you talk to the Safari. <laughs> don't fuck with the Safari. All right. All right. So, but no, seriously, the, um, all the physics of this stuff is very elementary. All the, the physicists who, who are not stupid and who are not afraid... Yeah, you know, we all understand what's going on here. It's not it's not hard to understand. Okay? It's easy. It's easy to understand this mm -hmm. stuff, okay? That means we know that there're plenty of we know there's life all over the place. There's no question of that. 
We know that? Of course we know that. How do we know that? We know that from, uh, as a theoretical physicist. I know it with almost 100 You know how I know it? Because I know the laws of chemistry. I know the laws of physics. I know the, law of the DNA code. And this is universal. It doesn't just, it's called the Copernican principle. What I, we're not special. This is all, well, you know, we're not some special thing. It happens all over the place. <clears throat> it's just chemistry. It's quantum mechanics. It's Schrodinger's equation. <laughs> you know, and things are just going to evolve. You pump energy in, and the complex molecules form, and the DNA codes forms, and we're here. We're not so special. Okay? We don't have any evidence of life. Anyway. Yes, we do. How? We, now, now, see, you don't understand how physics works. I know from the laws of nature that it has to be. But of course we know because I was... That we, you know because, right, because you you know physics. You claim all this stuff, but we don't know physics. I don't no, know but, physics. No, but you, then you have to take my word for it. I know more than you. <laughs> Okay, you're, you're a dumb little fuck who's only 38 years old, and I'm 84 years old, and I know I know things that you don't know. So learn. Right, so but explain to me. Yeah. Explain to I me. Mean, I was once like a, dumb a third fuck grader. Like you. Yeah, yeah. How? Because how is- see, because it was something called the Copernican principle. People used to think that the Earth was special, and then the whole revolution in astronomy with Isaac Newton and and, and Copernicus is that you know is that we're not the center of the universe. So you're just like still like the medieval peasant who still thinks we're the center of the universe. The physics of life is, is now, it, we, we have CRISPR, we have a genetic engineering, we know right. exactly how it works. Right. So it's universal. It's gonna but ha- that doesn't prove that there's life on other, that there's life out there, that there's interdimensional okay, life does, or interplanetary yeah, life. Of, yes, it proves it because we know, of course it proves it. If you believe in physics, it's got to be. Even uh, this is not even controversial. Even people who disagree about the the aliens and the flying saucer at the time, even they agree with me on this. This is this is what I'm telling you now is mainstream now. Anyone who see anyone see you're not some, uh, what what is your what was your degree in in, in college? <laughs> I went to college for six months and I dropped out. Okay, so you don't know anything. You don't know science. You don't know. You well, don't. That's know. your job to explain it to yes, me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you got, but I can't. Took me fifty years to know this, right? But what's the point of, of spending fifty years learning stuff if you can't tr- explain well, it I'm to explain, a layman? By, by you, yeah, but what I'm explaining to you is you have to take my word for certain things because this is we can't do everything. You can't do a four year thing in thirty minutes, right? But the thing is, <clears> that, I need to understand what I'm saying. What I'm claiming to you is, and this is not just me. This is now almost every scientist called every even the the mainstream guys will say we believe there's life out there. There's no. It would contradict everything we know about science if there wasn't. In other words, in other words when there are these Goldilocks, when there are Earth-like planets, mm-hmm. they may not look exactly like us, but you know, there's going to be DNA forming because we know how it forms. It's inevitable. So here's my point. Let me make my point. Okay. Okay, I'm just point. going to make the point. I don't want to argue it with you because we don't, you don't want to waste. No, this is great. This yeah, is okay. fun. I love All right. this. All right. But the point is this. What we know, here's, 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 here's the story. The physics of this stuff is so easy, and life is universal. The DNA codes—it's just quantum physics. It's, it's relativity. It's, it's just quantum. It's chemistry. It's just simple chemistry. And so, and the stars, because all the stars are the same carbon, and you know, we understand stellar structure. We don't have the stars. Well, we have the stars form the elements that lead to life. We understand. But we don't have the physical proof. We don't have a. a well, we do. That's what Commander Forever is showing you. That's what these guys, uh, yeah, Ryan but, Graves, are showing. Yeah, you. but there's so much disinformation. No, and, no, I uh, forget that. Okay, who knows be, what's uh, real? No, no, no. Well, yes, there's some, but I, Sarfati, take it from me. <laughs> I know what's real. Now, How we, do you know? 
How do you know? I know because I'm a genius. That's how I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know because because I've been in direct contact with the aliens, with the time travelers, whatever. I know, okay? That's how I know. I know. And I know because of the physics I'm getting is exactly what they said it was going to happen. It's all happening. And I know because what I'm telling you is how I met these guys. How do you explain that? Okay. Oh, we were hoping you would call. They knew where I was going. They, you know, these guys, the CIA, you see the CIA themselves, they're not in charge. They're, they're useful idiots. Like, we're all puppets. We're, they're not the puppet mass. They're the puppets. They're maybe a little, they're different levels. You know, there's some puppets pulling strings of other puppets. You know what I mean? So that's how they, so so I meet Hal Putoff. Let, let's, let's get back to this. You'll hear that you could hear the tape where I'm meeting them in the talk. I talk about, you know, the UFO from the future. And that because, because it was Russell Targ who brought it up. Mm-hmm. I didn't bring it up. He brings it up. Okay. So... So there we are. So how did yeah? I'm claiming that is smoking gun evidence for time travel. In other words, what happened to me in '53, the computer said I was going to begin to meet these guys. It happened exactly on cue, and there's no other way to explain it. And it turns out it, well, the CIA was involved at the highest levels, but they're just as clued. They're just as so. To speak. So you're saying there, as far as like a hierarchical, a hierarchy of um, a hierarchy of power in our world yeah. is. The top levels, the aliens. Next levels, well, intelligence. Maybe, yeah. Well, I don't know if the aliens. Okay, it depends. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a higher intelligence. They're more. They're more advanced than we are, and they've mastered time travel. I'm working on the equations of time travel. That's what I'm doing. That's what all this stuff is. That's what they're doing in Lawrence Livermore now. Okay. They're testing my time travel equation. Okay. 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 It's <laughs> elementary physics. Okay. You just got to take my you know. I can yell and scream, but you just you just got to take my word for it. I right? just want to understand it. That's yeah. all. You won't be able to understand. You see, you want you want too much too fast. It's okay. not easy to understand. This took me. This took us sixty years. The smartest people don't still don't understand it. Right, okay? right. But but I understand more than they do. So the point is this: this is being. Uh, that's what the destiny matrix is. This high the the tic tacs. All these things the Navy is seeing and the Russians are seeing. They're neutralizing our nuclear missiles, right? This is all. This is all yeah, yeah, yeah. There's oh, lots yeah. of documented so, cases of that. So this is superior technology. I am developing the, the basic equations for this technology, for time travel, to neutralize nuclear weapons, to go to warp drive, to, to go to Mars. You know, in, in 10 minutes, we get to Mars. So, okay, going to the Tic Tacs. Yeah. What do you, who is controlling those Tic Tacs? The same people who contacted me in, in 1953. They're in control. Who are those people? Are those people? I don't the, know who exactly who they are. I just know they're there. I, I don't know everything, but I know enough. Are they are they people from the future? Well, yes, they're from the future. They're, they're, I don't know if they're people. What do you mean by people? I don't know. Are they are they are they? It said it was a conscious computer. Are they from a conscious computer? Well, yeah. So at least they're you know like Terminator. But right? you don't know where they're from. They're from. They said well in one case, the one guy. There's a whole side story where it said it was uh, Ingo Swan said it was a hundred years in the future, and that was back. Uh, <clears throat> About forty years ago, so it'll be fifty, sixty years in the future. Maybe by the end of the century. Okay. Okay, which makes sense actually, because I think that's about when you know when all this stuff will probably happen. So uh, assuming we don't uh, uh, knock us out. So, but this gets back to your Bob Lazar Lazar story. The guy saying that the alien 
had a sulfur smell. That's not Bob Lazar. So yes, yes. So oh, that's a friend of yours. Okay. My friend James Fox. He made a documentary called okay, that James Fox and talks he made a about documentary. this guy with the clothes, the the satanic, the demon. With no, the no, no, no. So James Fox made a documentary yeah. called uh, is called the Roswell of Brazil, and it was about yes. uh, in the nineties, the early nineties. Yeah. A okay. uh, there was two uh, creatures that were discovered by these girls yeah. that were walking through a field. They saw this creature that reeked of sulfur yeah. and it was sitting there and it was like hurting and it like was like telepathically communicating with one yeah. of them saying it needed help. Yeah. And later there was another one captured, I think at the same day, maybe later in the day by the military yeah. or by the police captured it alive, brought it to a hospital in Virginia, Brazil. Yeah. And James interviewed the x-ray technician, yeah. a bunch of okay. people that worked in the hospital. Okay. They all said, said that there's pictures, illustrations of what they saw. Yeah. And they said people were in there taking photos and videos, although none of that's been released. Yeah. And they said that the hospital, they're being reeked of, and the hospital smelled like sulfur for like weeks afterwards, even yeah. after the U.S. military this, came in and took it out. Yeah, this is where, this is exactly where John Milton got Paradise Lost and all these you know, poetic things from Elizabethan age and you know, after that. This is all true. All these stories have truth in them because, let me get the, life is everywhere, all different kinds of life. Okay, the physics is elementary. So as soon as any civilization anywhere that doesn't kill itself with nuclear bombs, they'll develop this technology. So it, this is exactly Star Trek. This is Star Trek is real. And Gene Roddenberry was part of my, I didn't know him personally. Gene Roddenberry was influenced by the same people that I was involved with. This guy, Andrea Paharic, Uri Geller, all these people connected. I, I, I knew Francis Ford Coppola, who you know connected with Spielberg, or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm the guy who got Jacques Vallée to, to meet, connected with Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay, mm. So everything is connected. All these science fiction things and L. Ron Hubbard, they're all conditioning the public for the actual context. So there is no more science fiction. Timothy Leary said it's science faction. Okay, everything, all these movies. Timothy Leary said that. Yeah, Tim, yeah Timothy was part of our group too, Leary. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this whole thing. You gotta, actually, some of it is in there. You got you to, gotta, well, we'll keep it done. It's a complex story. So you can't tell it in like two hours, really. Yeah, I knew Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary said I was his heir. Timothy Leary had, in fact, there's uh, the Did guy. Did you ever try LSD? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, but many years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two or three times. Was that a part of any of these studies? No. Well, that's a whole other story. I mean, it is actually it does that involves strategic defense initiative. But yeah, let's, a, let's involves say what the strategic defense initiative. How so? We got time. Yeah. Well, because at that point, it was in the 1980s, we were working with the uh, Reagan people, and I was with this guy, part of. Uh, one of my mentors, so to speak, was this guy named Marshall Nafee, billionaire. You know, one of the crazy uh, uh, you know, movie theaters, cable <clears throat> television. He's, you know, he created Comcast. Comcast is all created by, you know, and Liberty Media and um, Doug Trumbull worked for him. You know, mm -hmm. movie industry, <clears throat> movies. <clears throat> he and his brothers, his, his father was already, was his father, grandfather? I guess his father. Yeah, no, it must have been his father. His father, the 1890s, in San Francisco, Barbary Coast, the Nickelodeons, you know, the first movie, Nickelodeon, but the movies, you know, the first movies are like this, okay? And his father's friend was Giannini, Bank of America, then, it was then called the Bank of Italy, became Bank of America. Okay. So this is back like before World War, around World War One, 
Okay? And so, uh, uh, so Giannini uh, gives money to, to Marshall Nafee's dad, and they form uh, United Artists Studios. Back, you know, this is the silent movies. Douglas Fairbanks, you know, Charlie Chaplin, all these mm. guys, if you know the history of the movies at all. And so uh, this is so, so, you know, they're one of the primary families of the Hollywood. Okay. Okay. And okay, when and when when Marshall was around twenty years old, like the before, right before the war, nineteen thirty-eight or so, his buddy, you know who Gary Cooper was? No, you don't know who Gary Cooper was. God, Darkness at Noon. Who was he? It's uh, Gary Cooper was it's like you know, Cary Grant. Oh God, you guys don't know. My God, I feel feel like I'm. These are the famous nineteen thirties, twenties Hollywood. You know who he is? Cary Grant. Yeah. God, okay, this, this is amazing, amazing. What am I doing? I'm on this planet. I'm, I'm in the other. I'm not. This is not my planet, guys. Not my planet. Okay, Gary. Okay, <laughs> I, I know Gary Cooper's daughter is a friend of mine. If she heard this, she'd be shocked. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, these are all famous Hollywood movie stars, the 1930s to 40s. Okay. Marilyn Monroe. You know Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe? Sounds familiar. No, you're kidding there, right? <laughs> I know who she is. Joe DiMaggio. I mean, yeah, she was here, Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, any case, so, uh, so, any case, so Gary Cooper and Marshall, the kids, they go on a tour of Europe and they're invited. They meet the Queen of England and the King of Denmark. I mean, these are the very high. Uh, when, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt came to San Francisco, he stayed at the Navy's house. Okay. Pacific Heights here. You know, now we're Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein, you know, the fancy mansions there. Mm. Uh, and so, in any case, so it's now the early 1980s, <clears throat> and Marshall is, uh, he's kind of like, he's like a shaman. He, now, he really is kind of like a, like a puppet master type guy. You know, he's very psychic. Mm. Remember, he's a billionaire. Already back then, he had a billion dollar more than a billion dollar, and so and and I did L and he was the he did a he did LSD, so I did LSD with Marshall about two or three times, and we had time we went back to ancient Egypt times all kinds of like interesting trips. I was back in ancient Egypt with Marshall, in really an em- in an emerald temple. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it was like that. You know, it was that was the experience. You know? mm. And then <clears throat> I was a knight in the Templars and the Crusades. It's all real, you know. So it's like time travel. The sort of stuff you read, what he's talking about in there, in that book. But what David Gladstone, give me, give me the book for a minute. What David Gladstone, uh, yeah, can you see it? What Gladstone talks about in this book, I actually had those experiences. Raise it up a little bit higher. Uh, I had some of those experiences. It's on Amazon. I had some of those same kind of experiences that Gladstone talks about that sound crazy with Marshall Nafee, billionaire, friend of Ronald Reagan. Okay? So what happened was, this is the backstory of the Strategic Defense Initiative. And Kim Burafato can confirm. Kim was there with me. Kim, you know, the guy yep, you met yep, yep. with Marshall, you know, confirm everything I'm telling you, witness, okay? So, uh, and, and uh, this guy who wrote the book, he was part of it too. So there's many witnesses to all this stuff. And um, so I challenge anybody who wants to say Jack Sarfati is lying, you come and you, you know, mano a mano, you, you face me and we'll, we'll discuss. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. So 
Um, so that's an open challenge. Okay. You want to duel with Sarfati? <clears throat> I'll duel with you. Okay. All right. So now, <clears throat> Ronald Reagan. Okay, let's get to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is the governor of California in the late 70s. There's a guy named Laurie Chickering. He just died a week ago. And Laurie Chickering uh, comes from the Chickering family, the old Wasp family, like Mayflower type, you know, the old in New England, but they're here in San Francisco. And Laurie's brother is uh, high up. Uh, one of his brothers is already high up in the Central Intelligence Agency. Laurie uh, goes to Yale. He's skull and bones and all that stuff, you know. And he's a close friend of William F. Buckley Jr. I don't know if you know who that is. I've heard of him. Yeah, National Review, you know. And um, <clears throat> and Laurie comes back to San Francisco, and he is involved with Caspar Weinberger, who became the Reagan Secretary of Defense, uh, Brent Scowcroft, General Mm-hmm. who became head of, uh, I think, Reagan's uh, National Security Agency. And uh, who else? Milton Friedman, economist, Chicago, actually. That's maybe why they wanted me to go to Chicago. Milton Friedman, yeah. And who was some of the other guys? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, who's the guy? Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld. Okay, wait. Right guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was a good-looking guy, but, but you know, not that smart again. <laughs> okay, Donald Rumsfeld. And who's the other one? Uh, I'm leaving somebody important out. Let's see. Well, it'll come to me. Um, and they set up a think tank when Reagan's still the governor, uh, like 78, 79, uh, called the Institute for Contemporary Studies down here on Kearney Street, right near where Francis Coppola has his building. And um, and they're the main thing. They're connected with the Hoover at Stanford, the Hoover Institution. You know. mm. uh, and, um, and I became, I was kind of like their informal science guy you know the, you know and any case uh, they got they had the main thing that they engineered one of the main think tanks that engineered Reagan getting into the White House so Reagan is the president now in 1980 I think before he shot was he already shot or after before that guy shot him and it was like around 1980 1981 and um, and Reagan's a close friend of, uh, I mean Marshall could just go, call the White House and he wants to start Ronnie hey Ronnie you know it's, it's Marshall it's that kind of thing mm-hmm. okay and all these guys had the Cafe Trieste where I showed you everybody's hanging out there at the Cafe Trieste okay wow okay Coppola Francis Coppola whatever when <clears throat> Reshtakov came you know, Julie Christie when anybody from Hollywood comes say that's their hangout and another place called Enrico Benducci's down the street Enrico mm-hmm. was a you know kind of a nightclub uh, and uh, so any case at one point so uh, yeah so uh, now Marshall but for example, if a guy named like if if Coppola wanted to make a movie, you first, Marshall's like the you know the finance. You you want to make a a big movie, Hollywood movie, talk to Marshall, talk to the Nafee brothers first. Okay, you know James Bond, the James Bond movies. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Did you ever see? But but Sean Connery. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Well, Marshall was Al Broccoli made those movies. Marshall Nafee was his silent partner because he was by law for taxes or something they 
See, you can have movie theaters, and you're not supposed to do movies. Mm. Production. Yeah, they split it for Monopoly, read, whatever. Any case, <clears throat> Mar- we had, Marshall had one of the, you know, the, the, the old movies, the, the black Aston Martin, that, the, the convertible that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that he drives. Yeah. There were four of those made for the movies, four of those. We had one of them. Marshall had one in his car. Oh, wow. Okay? Okay. So Marshall's a powerful man. It's like, you know, by this, but this is now 1980. He helped Reagan get into power, and you know I'm I'm smoking dope. <laughs> Driving around is we go to Mount Tam, get stoned, and he was he's an evangelical Christian. He's trying to get ready to <laughs> listen, you know, like, right, right, evangelical Christian. Listen, as with, <laughs> in the dope, in the dope filled Jaguar. <laughs> You're driving around listening to you know, Jesus going to save you, man. <laughs> So, and that's when, you know, we, we tried LSD a couple of times. You know, uh-huh. I had time travel trips. All right. Anyways, Laurie Chickering is now running the Institute for Contemporary Studies. <clears throat> and for some reason, he wants to meet, have lunch with Marshall. He had some project. He wanted to meet Marshall. And so, so he says, Laurie says, can you arrange a lunch? We'll have lunch at Enrico's, who's a close friend of Marshall. Enrico's where all the movie stars would hang out, you know, on Broadway back then. Woody Allen, you know, all kinds of people. Uh, and um, Mort Saul. And um, so I arranged a lunch, and we, we were having lunch, sitting around this round table, and Enrico, uh, who plays the violin, and he cooks, he's cooking pasta for everybody. It's like it's right out of a, a Godfather movie, you know, sitting around there. And Marshall was stoned at the time. Maybe I was stoned too, I don't know, because we probably smoked before we went to lunch. But Laurie was straight. Laurie didn't, you know, he doesn't know any of this stuff. He doesn't know about, you know, he's a very straight, mm-hmm. you know, running, you know, neocon type. And what we didn't know, Marshall had just made a movie with Al Broccoli and Sean Connery called Meteor. You could see it, uh, 1980 or so, 1981. So Marshall's talking, they're talking, yeah, copy conversation, Marshall, and he's kind of like in reverie, and he's, uh, <clears throat> says, he says, you know, what if, it's Marshall, what if the extraterrestrials were going to attack us? They were coming. Marshall, this is like, he's, you know, he's thinking of this movie, there was a meteor was going to come to it. But Marshall says, what if there was, a, and what if, you know, this is the Cold War is on, 1980, Soviet Union. He says, what if, we had to get together with Russia to fight the ETs, you know. And we got the laser we missiles and we shoot down the, the, the flying saucers with the, miss, with the laser beams and all that stuff. And, but he was talking because he had just made a movie, but kind of that stuff was in the movie. It was mm-hmm. some science fiction for him. But he was just talking. So, <laughs> see, this is all being arranged for the future. This couldn't, yeah, I mean, this, you know, this. So, so Laurie, okay, so we have the lunch. Marshall leaves, and Laurie, and I'm like working, you know, the, the Laurie's giving me a little bit of money, you know, living on on the edge, Bohemians, you'll see, he talks about it in there, in that book. Laurie says, hey, Jack, that was pretty interesting. Can you write up what, what Marshall was talking about? So I have a little thing, and I was working on stuff too about neutralizing nuclear weapons with laser beams. I was working on that myself. So I put in some of my stuff, and then also in there I say, uh, and with this new technology, you know, Sarfati space, even then, although I didn't have it the way I have it now. But this new thing, we can, do, we can render nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete, which is what the Tic Tacs are doing already. You see, already. Mm-hmm. I already had that back in 1980. It's in this memorandum that I wrote. Okay, 
So it's a short thing. I give it to Lori. A few weeks go by. I'm walking into the Cafe Trieste where I took you when we met Kim last night. Mm-hmm. Lori comes up to me excited. Says, hey, Jack. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he doesn't talk like that. I mean, he's, you know, he's a aristocrat, you know. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, I gave that report to Paul Nietzsche. If you look at Paul Nietzsche, N-I-T-Z-E, was the main arms control, you know, security guide for Reagan advising him on, on how to deal with the Russians and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. And, and Nietzsche really liked it. Okay. So went right to Reagan. Okay. This report. And then when, when Reagan found out that Marshall Nafee, who was his buddy from Hollywood, I say, in fact, in fact, okay, now Edward Teller, Edward Teller was on, uh, Edward Teller was pushing for this stuff. Missile defense and lasers. This is right. All, okay. And here Marshall's talking about it too. So Marshall may have known about Teller. Yeah, he may have known a little bit about it. Didn't they have some sort of program they were working on with DARPA where they wanted to create some sort of like dome around the United no, States? No, wait. That's, no, wait. No, wait. Don't Just stay on this. That's what we're doing now. That's what I'm doing. Okay. But wait, that's what Safari Space Corp is all about. I read about this though in that DARPA book that they worked on this back yeah, in the Yeah. Well, the yeah, but they didn't have, because I that was me. That was my people. I mean, I know that they didn't have it. They didn't have it. They thought about it. It was psychological warfare. We were thinking about it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, but it never happened. Well, the Iron Dome, but that, you know, that's yeah, the Iron Dome, the missiles against missiles. That's something else. I'm talking about some. No, yeah. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm yeah. talking about some sort of like. The force uh, field. Okay. Force field. Yeah, exactly. All right. Wait a second. I guess. Oh, yeah, okay. Wait. Let me finish this. Okay. 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 Yeah. The answer is yes. I'm the guy for that. Okay. I'm the guy who knows how to do that. Okay. Basically. All right. All right. Basically is what I'm saying. All right, so now, and I, and anybody wants to challenge me, you come. I don't care who the hell you are. You come, you know. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, you come, and we'll talk about all this. Get in the octagon with We'll Jack. talk about it in front of a million people, and okay. then we'll see who wins, okay? Okay. All right, all right. So now, so but let's get back to this. So, so at the same time, Paul Nietzsche is taking this memorandum I wrote, and then Edward Teller has a biography, his autobiography, called Dark Matters. And Tell is talking about how he was trying to get Reagan to go for a strategic defense initiative. And Reagan, you know, so I found out later, Reagan did not trust Teller. Reagan thought, because Reagan always was wondering, well, yeah, well, I don't, you know, maybe he's a double agent or whatever. You know, Reagan was a little paranoid about Teller. And Teller says in his book, he was out of the loop. He doesn't know. He was totally shocked when Reagan finally went executive order, whatever it was, for a strategic defense initiative. That's because of the Sarfati memo with Marshall Nafee's name on it that, you know, I guess Reagan spoke to Marshall. You know, Marshall's his buddy. He trusts Marshall. They, right. You know, they would, they would drink. You know, they, they would socialize together back, you know. And so, um, but also at that time, Cap Weinberger, who was then the Secretary of Defense, I already had a following then, kind of, you know. And uh, Cap Weinberger's son, Cap Jr., was, you know, like part of my fan club, okay? So I'm all this, I was writing a bunch of crazy stuff about all this stuff, and UFOs, and, you know, and EPR, and, you know, communication with submarines, and untappable, it's all, it's all in the, it's all in the book, uh, How the Hippie Save Physics. And, um, and so all of my, my writings was also going directly to the Secretary of Defense, Cap Weinberger, through his son, 
Cap Jr. would take, you know, it, it, Cap Jr. was, well, I want to make it too much. It was like Hunter Biden and, 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 and uh, Joe Biden, except you know, they weren't crooks, I don't think. Uh-huh. Okay, but, but my, uh, it was like Hunter Biden was, was, was Cap Jr., but he wasn't a dope addict. Really. You know, he's, a, he's a straight guy, okay? And in fact, he's still alive. You should try to find him. I don't know what happened to him because Cap Jr. can confirm. He actually confirmed this guy, this guy Bill Burns, who did History Channel uh, oh, yeah. UFOs. You know Bill Burns? Did you ever hear Bill Burns? Any case. Talking about case. William Burns, the director of the CIA? No, no, it's a different Bill Burns. Okay. Oh, that's, oh, that's, oh, that's a different Bill. But see if you can find, see if Jim Angleton will know how to find Cap Weinberger Jr. He's probably still alive. It's, okay. I, I could actually find him. I could find him. I have. Okay. But <clears throat> but we should try to find him because he can confirm all this stuff. And, and, uh, and Cap Jr. was telling us that he would fly to Camp David with his dad, Cap, and and the president, and they would spend weekends at Camp David, and they would go over some of my stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. you know this writings. They would discuss it, and also, and then in 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 Reagan's, uh, I think it's his 1984, maybe his 1986 State of the Union. He talks about me. He doesn't mention me. He says, and the, we know the physicists. They have touched the face of God. They show how God exists in their recovery. I was talking about all that stuff, all this religion, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, and about, you know, Star Wars and all this stuff that we're going to do. That, you know, he, he gives a very inspiring talk based on Jack Sarfati's information that he was getting. And I even have a letter from <clears> Cap <throat> Weinberger thanking me for my work, uh, Superluminal, all this stuff. All right. So it had direct. So okay. So of course we the Russians were following all this. This is the Russians. See, we the Russians were involved in all this. How so? Because we had back channels. We would be in talking to Russians. The Russians were already at Esalen. See, the Russians already knew about me back in the. The Russians already okay. We were already. The Russians first contacted us. In the early in 1975, at that around the same time that Koopman's telling me, you know, we want you to work on this, because we did a book that we did a book about Uri Geller called Space Time and Beyond. It sold a couple hundred thousand copies and influenced Hollywood. That's how I met Ellie Coppola because of that book. You know, that's how I came up with Coppola. That's how that's how Jacques Vallée got involved and everything. See, it's all being orchestrated by this higher power. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because this can't happen. It's not a random thing. All these strange, what Jung called synchronicities, all these synchronicities, strange yes. coincidences happening. It's all kind of connected. <clears throat> like I know Jack, I know, I know uh, Frank Molina, who was Jack Parsons' partner, and I stay with Frank Molina in Paris at his place, at his beautiful place. You know, and you know he, you know, so I mean, it's all everybody's connected to everybody. Mm. You know, and it's and L. Ron Hubbard and Andrea. I mean, everybody were like one, two or three. Connections away. So if you do a web of who knows who, you'll see it's a tight web, like a tight spider web. Destiny, I call that the destiny matrix. It's not It's not random. It's being orchestrated. Why did you, you told me that um, the Russians came here to interview you about some stuff. Yeah, well, that's 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 more recently. Wait, for, for, let's go back. The first Russian thing is we have this book. Which are basically a CIA engineered book, right? Which I didn't know at the time. I was a, what's called a useful idiot, not really know, sort of suspecting, but not you know, not knowing for sure. All right, uh, because it didn't come out publicly that the 
that what they were doing with Geller was CIA and Mossad until much later. Now it's it's in that book. You know, it's in their books. These are books. That Third Eye Spy. Uri Geller has books. But you know, you, you read his book. so now it's all public information. Then it wasn't, and I wasn't even sure. I suspected, but I wasn't sure. So, so the book comes out, Space Abiel, which we wrote in Paris. And uh, and E.P. E. Dutton, and in there we have this thing about bio bio biogravity. I don't know it's some crazy thing that that Bob Tobin was into, and I kind of went along with it. Yeah, Fred went along with it. Well, I wasn't that. Into it. But then we get a call. For, uh, Bob. Oh yeah, the, the uh, uh, what's this guy? White Dan Whitehead. Dan Whitehead was the editor at Dutton Books in Manhattan, and Dan Whitehead gets a call from the. Uh, I guess the Russian embassy in New York, saying we are concerned that uh, Tobin and you know, Wolf Safadi they wrote this book about biofields and I could, but they didn't give us credit. We have this Russian side that's his theory and didn't give it credit. That's our first overt contact. You know, why didn't we give them credit? This is from you know. So we get uh, sorry, you know, give them credit. You know, we didn't know. You know that sort of thing. So that's the first overt thing. And then it was all an excellent. Then, already, now, let's see. So how do we know? Well, okay, so then in the 1980s, okay, then, <clears throat> like, this is now after after this stuff with Reagan, around, nine, yeah, just, just when Reagan gave that State of the Union speech, 1986 or so. Now you want to ask, okay, so now, at that point, there was no internet. There was Xerox machines. And I would, you know, it was the way I do emails, I was doing like Xerox mailing. I had like a network with this guy, Ira Einhorn, whatever. And, and um, so I was at, I remember I was down at Washington Square. There was a Xerox store there where there's now the Victoria Bakery. And I was like Xeroxing stuff to mail out in my, you know, it was a crazy period. And I get a, a guy taps me on the shoulder. It's a guy, Harold Chipman. Harold Chipman. Now, he, you look him up and you know, look at me, Harold Chipman. Harold Chipman was chief of station of the Central Intelligence Agency office in San Francisco. Okay, now this is like over. <laughs> it couldn't be more right then. Right? So he's beyond, he's like, I look out there, there he is. He says who he is. We go to the cafe, you know, and he says he wants, he wants to. This is like, now, you know, it's official. It's the CIA. I even went to the CIA office with them a couple of... In fact, I, I started... I wanted a date. There was a, a, a pretty CIA agent, a woman, blonde, who I... Yeah, I went, we went to Gold's Cafe. Yeah, I was hitting on her. Yeah, this was you know, a relationship going on. Good old honey trap. Well, no, but she was already... She didn't... Yeah, you know, we were just... Friends. She, you know, Nothing ever happened, but you know, we, mm. I, was, I would have liked something to happen. You know, we, we went drinking at bars a couple of times, you know, down... Um, and she became, she's actually went pretty high up, I think. She still may be alive. She still may be in, probably retired, I don't know. You know <clears> and, um, damn, I didn't. So in any case, so I was involved with, you know, I used to hang, you know, I was involved with all these CIA guys in San Francisco. So, um, and at that point, and I, I even have documents on this, and at that point, um, they wanted to set up, oh, just like now, the Sarfati Institute to work on all this stuff. You know, all this, you know, communication with submarines, with the fast, with entanglement, you know, mm -hmm. 
like what's now called quantum information theory, quantum computing. We had all the quantum spin computing. We all had the idea of quantum computing already. Right. All right. And he wanted to set up. Uh, and so he took me. Okay, so Chipman, he was Catholic, old Catholic faith with a coat of arms. And he was a member of Opus Dei, which is like the uh, Catholic guy uh, with the Pope, you know, back in, he's kidding with the Vatican. That's how I know. And also the Knights of Malta, the Knights of Malta. Mm-hmm. All right. And he was a member, I don't know, do you know, the club, the Explorers Club in Washington, D.C. It's like the Bohemian Grove sort of thing, type mm-hmm. thing in Washington, D.C. He was a member of the Explorers Club. And he, uh, now it turns out he was, he was also involved in the MK Ultra CI experiments, LSC in San Francisco. How was he involved with that? He was running it or something when he was an early CIA. He was one of the guys in charge of it. What? And, yeah, yes. And um, and then he also was the guy behind the CIA operation at the Stanford with Hal Putoff and all these guys. Okay, he was behind this What's guy. What's his name Pat- again? Harold Chipman. Harold Chipman. Hal Ch- Harold Harold Chipman. Called, they call him Chip. 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 Harold Chipman. Chipman, Harold Chipman. You look him up. He was, but he was Berlin. He was a real James Bond. He was like a guy when he was younger. He was like, a, a, you know, he was went into Russia, and they attacked in the Ural Mountains. This is during before I met him. They went in and they did an operation trying to get secrets on some bioweapon that they were working on in the Ural Mountains, and something went wrong, and hundreds of Russians were killed inadvertently. You know, the team had, had, had got screwed up. And he felt very guilty about that because it was not meant to happen. It was like a, to go in, get the information, get uh-huh. out without anybody even knowing. But something went wrong. And as a result, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people died in this secret Soviet bioweapons lab back, uh, I don't know when it was. Right. Okay. That ultimately led, Hal was assassinated by the KGB. Before what I was doing, you know, wow. I mean, because it was payback, and they said, and he kind of accepted. He they 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 poisoned him like the polonium poison. What they mm-hmm. do like this guy, he was he was poisoned that way. And as he was dying, he got a call from the from the uh, the Soviet Council here, you know, who was here back then, saying, "How are you doing?" You know, and uh, they couldn't prove. But he, but he, you know, he at that point he felt so he he was, was you know really affected him because you know, he how had do conscience. you know about all this stuff? With him? How do you know about all the all because these he told me he told you all this? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, I'm not making it up. So like when he was dying from this poison, he called you up and told well, you. Well, we already know. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's another guy. There's a right. This guy Riley. There's another guy who was part of our group who was close to him. Uh, and, and this involves Iran Contra and weapons deals, and I know all mm. kinds of stuff about what was going on back then. You know, with the Iran Contras, this is all everything's involved, and in I was on the on the edge of all that stuff. You mm. know, and um, and um, and this is guys, <laughs> Stephen. You have to interview Stephen Schwartz. That'd be for something. But in any case, um, so what was happening? He wanted to. Hal was uh, trying to set up. He took me to uh, University of San Francisco. Father Joseph Pezio, who is the head of the, uh, I guess, the Jesuit order, uh, uh, you know, at University of San Francisco. I met Father Pezio, Joseph Pezio, uh, and they were going to set up this institute, think tank, Mm -hmm. for me to work on all the stuff that we're doing now, actually, back then in the 1980s. And if you look, I could show you who he's had, uh, Roosevelt, one of the Roosevelt guys. 
Mm. One of the sons of uh, FDR was involved. I actually have the, the stuff. And all these guys from the Ray Klein, all these top guys from, from Wall Street, you know, who are all going to be on the board of directors. If I, you know, all set up, this whole <clears> thing set up. And it would have happened, but then he was suddenly, he got Polonia, whatever, crazy, and he died. Whoa. So that's it. It's happening again now. <laughs> it's happening now, right? But this is back then. It was already supposed to happen, but didn't happen. Mm. All right? So now it's happening now. Wow. All right. So, you know, there's, um, in fact, let me, wait, is my book Destiny Matrix? You see the book Destiny Matrix? Oh, yeah. There, let me just see if I can find it. There it is, yeah. Yeah, this is still on a, can you see this? this everything I'm telling you is in this book. You get this on Amazon. Okay. It's actually being redone. There's a new edition that's being, it'll be expanded. This stops at 2002. So Look at gonna, that, man. What a cover. Yeah, it stops at 2002. What is that little guy in the front of it? I don't, that's just some, I don't know. But, um, Time traveler? So this is my chipman here, and this is this thing. Hey, let me just see. The Sarfati Institute. This institute, proposed to be located at the University of San Francisco, will be funded by the Sarfati Corporation. They're bringing in money. Goals of the institute. The goals will, and this is an official CIA thing. Goals of the institute to conduct basic research in the quantum physics of non-local phenomena discovered by Albert Einstein in 1935, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen-Bohm effect. And... To develop applications of the basic mathematics and physics research into patents for untappable, unjammable command control communications, sixth-generation quantum spin correlation supercomputers. This is 1985. Okay, but uh, get this. Uh, quantum zero-point energy release for interstellar rocket engines. Super Technology for the Strategic Defense Initiative, <clears throat> SDI, to reduce the possibility of nuclear war. Pi Orbital Electron Spin Control of Recombinant Genetic Engineering. Mm-hmm. It's like CRISPR now. Is that okay? And this is 40 years ago. Manipulation of Hoyle Girdle Loops in Time. That's the warp drive stuff. And, you know, to take, that's flying sources. Up I want to talk to you about that real quick. Okay, but wait, but let's finish this. Okay. You know, otherwise, you get too scattered. The other fundamental applications as they emerge from the basic research program. Oh, now, look. The style of the Institute. This is, this, is, this is the highest levels of people involved in this thing, okay? Top minds, both established and up and coming, should be paid to come and conduct research in an environment where they are unafraid to speculate. Remember, I didn't write this stuff. This is written by the CIA. By unafraid me. to speculate. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. This is important. This is ahead of its time. Seminars, both formal and informal, shall take place. Entertaining educational media mm. shall be developed for the public. Sounds like To the Stars Academy now, right? Scientists, poets, artists, political theorists, philosophers, military and intelligence officers, politicians, captains of industry, theologians shall be gathered together for workshops on the cultural impact of breakthroughs in the new physics. This is exactly like like the Bohemian Grove, 
what you know. That's what happens at Bohemian Grove. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens at Bohemian Grove. You know, that's what uh, uh, Oppenheimer. This is public now. Oppenheimer. The way the Manhattan Project started, I don't know if they'd have this in the movie, Oppenheimer gave a speech up in this chalet, I've, I've been there, the chalet, you know, all these top generals and you know, politicians in 1941-42 saying with the slide paper that we have to build the atomic bomb. It was all done through the Bohemian Grove, through the Bohemian Club, which is a club down here, you know, okay. All right, now, just let me, okay, I'm not going to, but let me say, the people, some of the people, some of the people, and this is important, some of the people, okay, banking, senior partner, Paul Berry Associates. These are, you got to look these guys up. I'll, you know, you could, you could, you could get Okay, this. all right. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Let's, let's, okay. Okay. let's keep going. Foreign, okay, this is all, okay, for military, this, this is his background. You see all his CIA stuff, Barton. Oh, wait, 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 just some of the, some of the other people who he was involved. Okay, uh, science, Arthur Shallow, Nobel Prize, one of the lasers. Shallow, uh, I don't know. John, uh, military, E. B. Roberts, Johnson and Johnson, corporate. These are guys. religious father Joseph Pestius. This is all the religions already here, right? It's everything that the guys tell you. There it is. It's right here. This is this is the Vatican. Okay, political. Dr. Ray Klein. You look up who Ray Klein is. Senior associate, Center for Strategic and International Studies, Georgetown University. You look up who Ray Klein is. This is a big shot. Okay, these are friends. These are Chipman's buddies. Oh wow. Okay. The economic, Donald Hyland, okay. Economic, direct, oh, oh, yeah. Archibald B. Roosevelt Jr. Archibald B. Roosevelt, you know, a son of the right. FDR. Right. It's part of this project. Chester Bunnell, oh, there's a John G. Altenberg. Oh, Altenberg. Altenberg's a famous guy. Okay. So this is, you know, here, this is the actual document that I reprinted in this book that shows you what the CIA was into. And it was actually ahead of it. It would have been great had it happened. It sort of happened, but uh, haphazard. And it's now happening again. They're trying to do it again. It's now, now happening right now. It's now happening. And that is the... Uh, uh, you were trying to explain to me last night when I was asking you about the Grush testimonies and all the yeah, stuff yeah. that he was saying. And I was explaining to you that I was highly skeptical of the whole thing. The fact that they made it this big dog and pony show on oh, yeah, national yeah, television. Yeah. And, you know, I always question it. When the government starts to get behind it, I always question motives and what's going okay, on. Okay, first, uh, when you say the government, there is no such thing anymore. There's no government. We're in a state of chaos. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of part one of my conversation with Jack Sarfati. That's right. We have an entire second part of this conversation dropping next week. Jack and I get deep into the new UFO whistleblower disclosures, some black budget DARPA programs, and Jack is going to illustrate exactly how his UFO warp drive equation works. You're not going to want to miss it. Please hit the subscribe button as well as the bell so you can get notified as soon as the episode drops. I'll see you next week.